Kurt, you ready? Yep. Yep. <clears throat> Welcome everybody to the June the 5th um, edition of the Multimodal Transportation Commission meeting. We're going to start, as always, with our study session, which begins at 5. And the topic for this study session is, my agenda is not up yet, but I believe it is preparing for the, thank you. Yes. Progress of the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program. So I think there's maybe more to it than that exact title. I think we had originally planned on doing a redo of the Your Turn session that we had a couple of years ago at this point, aiming to invite members of neighborhood associations, probably through LAND, the Lawrence Association of Neighborhoods, and um, trying to see what they thought of the ongoing Neighborhood Traffic Management Program progress, if they were aware of all of the different elements of it, and how we could use their input to kind of guide the future of the next couple of years. So that was the plan. Given the study session is entitled the same way, is there anything that's changed, or are we still talking about that? that that's the intent. Okay. Let's still talk okay. about that, yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I hadn't missed something. Do we need to do a preamble real quick on the hybrid format? Yes, I'll do that real quick. Uh, this meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on the screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you're participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send us a chat. Uh, the city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. And also, before we get started, want to introduce uh, everyone, our newest member of the MMTC, Sean Oshman. So, welcome. So, I think since we'll probably have time, I can't imagine our discussion is going to take up the entire study session. May as well do introductions. Um, that'd be a bad idea. So, I guess I can start off. Um, my name is Nick Kuzmiak. I'm the current chair of MMTC. I've been doing this since 2019, I want to say. That sounds right. Um, and um, I got my start here by being a member of the Public Transit Advisory Committee, PTAC. And back then, they, or what was once called Transportation Commission, was made up of various um, representative positions for various interests, like the school board, bike and ped issues, an engineer. I, I forget what, what all, the, all the representations were. But at some point, those became at large positions, so it doesn't really matter anymore, but at the time, I was a public transit representative for PTAC to Transportation Commission, so that's where I come from. In my day job, I'm an environmental engineer. I work on things like wastewater and renewable energy, but um, transportation and planning have been great interests of mine for years now, so it's nice to actually get involved. Damon? I'm Damon Baltuska, um, vice chair. I've been this commission since... Oh, a little over a year now. Um, I live in Pinckney neighborhood. Uh, my background's in architecture. I went to KU. Uh, graduated 2015, and I work just up the block. Uh, and I'm here because in 2019 I just started um, trying to use my car like as little as possible, and just like biking and walking around. Um, we'll get anyone, um, I guess into this whole gambit pretty quickly, so. I'm a cat for that, and uh, I've been on the commission, I think, two and a half years. 
Dustin Smith, I'm a senior project engineer with the MSO, um, focused mainly on traffic transportation projects and manage neighborhood traffic management program. What does MSO stand for? Municipal Services and Operations. It's kind of the combined public works and utilities department. You might be asking about a lot of acronyms. That, that's that's perfectly fine. There seems fine. to yep. be a lot of Yep. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm Sean, soon to be Sean Maple. We're in a name change because we got hitched. It's a whole other story. Uh, and my wife and I, we lived in Boulder for fi uh, 15, 20 years. And Boulder's a great place to bike everywhere, which I did. And it was wonderful. And one of the things that uh, really drew us to Lawrence is the bikeability of the town. So we moved here in August, and we live in North Lawrence on Locus, and uh, we love it. And my day job is we make decorative attachments for helmets, so things like um, kitty ears, unicorn horns, banana through your head, stuff like that. Uh, so we work from home, which is great, a lot of freedom there. and. Um, yeah, so we're stoked to be here. And I, you know, as far as biking, I, I bike most places and or walk. And I think that non-car-based transportation is one of the ways that we build community and um, just improve the quality of life overall. So I can't really complain about stuff unless I get involved in stuff. So here I am getting involved in stuff. <laughs> so so you have something to complain about? <laughs> That's right. I can complain right here. Yeah. Are you a helmet player? Yeah. Okay, I've seen your, I think it's a van or something. I've yep. seen it around it's, town. I've been curious about that. It's hard to miss the van. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty bright. That's awesome. Yeah, we're world famous in Lawrence. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah some people get billboards, we just wrap the van. Nice. nice. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for having me. I'll ask a lot of questions. So be patient with me. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And we've met before, but Dave Cronin, city engineer, and yeah, looking forward to having you on the, on the board. And we got acquainted uh, for the meeting, Sean Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager, also at MSO. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Charlie Bryan, and I was, I've been part of this since 2017, I think. It's basically the beginning of the MMTC. At the time, I was the appointee representing the health department. And then, like Nick said, we've all, it's all kind of shifted to being at large. So now I just represent myself, I guess. Um, and... I had uh, early on been involved in the, at the health department in some of the Safe Routes to School work and Lawrence Loop kind of work and um, don't do that work anymore. I'm in a totally different role now, but uh, that certainly got my interest going and I've enjoyed it. And I think this will be my last year. I term off, I think, finally this year. So um, it's been a good ride. Hi, my name is Ryan Reza. Um, I'm actually the formerly newer, newest commissioner, but now I'm the second newest. So, You're welcome. <laughs> um, I graduated KU last year. Uh, my day job, I'm a data analyst for Kansas Action for Children. We're a legislative advocacy group, so I do legislative work at the state capitol. Um, 
but I care a lot about public transit. I was a KU student for four years and I only ever used a bus. So I didn't drive to school, I took the bus. Um, and it was great. Um, I live out in Haskell now, um, yeah, like 13th, and it's awesome because there's a bus stop next to my apartment building, but um, none of nobody my age cares about local government, um, including my friends, and I try to get them more active. And so um, I wanted to be more of a voice in the public transit community for um, in Lawrence for younger folks because a, lo a huge part of our population is college students and I want to see more college students stay in Lawrence um, after they graduate and like my myself and my partner have and we think the, one of the best ways to do that is by making it a less car centric community. Agreed. Jessica Mortinger from Metropolitan Public Organization. Mm -hmm. Hi. Computers. Can you hear me? And we have Hillary online too. Yeah, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Great. Um, hi, I'm Hillary Carter. I uh, joined this commission this spring. Um, my background is in urban planning. I work for an affordable housing consulting firm out of Southern California, San Diego. Um, I work across the country. I've been biking for transportation. I'm originally from Austin, Texas, and I've been biking for transportation for about two decades now. I'm here because I want to help build an all ages and abilities network. I bike for transportation with my young children, two young children. And so um, I hope to bring that perspective to serving on the MMTC and the importance of, of doing that work. Nice to meet you. Sweet. All right. Um, so since the topic of our discussion today is, is kind of centered around the NTMP, the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program, and we have three relatively new members, I feel like it may not be a bad idea to do a quick recap of what exactly that is, mostly for our understanding, but also because I think it actually factors into the discussion we're hoping to have with the neighborhood representatives as well. I think there are a lot of misunderstandings, misconceptions, and just, you know, beneficial ignorance, basically. Like, people aren't entirely sure what this is or haven't really heard the overarching name, but they've seen the effects of it. Um, some they like, some they don't, but I don't think people realize that they're all connected. So I'm gonna do my best to give an elevator pitch on what this is, um, but I, I may need the experts to correct me if I get something completely wrong. So um, Neighborhood Traffic Management Program has been going on for, I wanna say, two or three years now. I think it was started right at the beginning of the COVID 21. pandemic. Yep. And it was, it's sort of a rethinking of how we make smaller residential and local streets safe for people who aren't just in their cars. The original approach, as far as I have heard, was basically kind of a, a long line of petitioners who would ask for speed bumps or some sort of traffic control on their roads and their neighborhoods. And once funds freed up, they would eventually get speed bumped. So um, if you're familiar with North Lawrence, a lot of those speed bumps were by you know a, a particularly vocal member of the community who was able to get those put through, but if your community didn't have a Ted Boyle, then there wasn't so much you could do about it, right? So it was kind of a, it was an interesting system that I think elements still could be useful going forward, but what it's been replaced with, more or less, is called the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program, and it focuses on everything in mostly residential areas between the big streets. So if you're familiar with Pinckney, for example, that would be everything above 6th, east of Iowa or McDonald, and south of K-10, and west of the river, so, sorry, not K-10, I-70. So basically everything that's not a total arterial street. Um, 
And the difference between the previous approach and the new approach is that instead of focusing on kind of simple and conventional engineering, we call them methods to slow traffic, speed bumps, stop signs, we're, we're now at the five E's. So we're trying to do a, a multifaceted approach to making traffic slower and safer through engineering, encouragement, education, enforcement, and Evaluation. Evaluation. Hmm? Evaluation. Evaluation. Ah, the data science part. So, um, so let's see. For evaluation, that would mean, I think, purchase of equipment to monitor and record speeds and traffic counts and kind of figure out what's really going on in the neighborhood, as well as, I believe, soliciting kind of on-the-ground information from people who live there. Enforcement is targeted enforcement by the police department, um, based on the results of the evaluation by budgeting overtime for the, for the officers to kind of sit at problem intersections, problem roads, and, and you know at least start by giving people a warning and let them know there is enforcement now happening. Encouragement and education, to me, seem kind of connected, but if you've seen those signs around town that say, we slow down for each other, or you're my neighbor, let's not crash into each other. I forget what they say, but that's the education and encouragement bit. We had folks on the steering committee to develop those signs and the message and everything, but that was a pretty big rollout as well. Um, the engineering part is, is, I guess you could say, the most controversial one because it moves beyond the typical toolbox of speed bumps and stop signs. So engineering is when the police can't be there all the time, when people can't obey speed limits, um, or when it's just kind of too difficult for anything but an actual physical piece of infrastructure, that's when the engineering kind of has to step in. So um, the Old West Lawrence traffic calming pilot is the is kind of the major deliverable of the engineering portion so far. So we went through three rounds, Dustin was there for all of them, and kind of guided the process of talking with the engineering consultant and the neighborhood and MSO and us to try to pull it all together and go through a couple of iterations such that as many people were reasonably happy as possible, especially in the neighborhood. So um, that is getting constructed for real sometime this year, I believe, at least the first phase of it. So. You know, we're finally getting to the point where actual concrete's going on the ground um, as part of the engineering portion of the NTMP. So things have been happening. There's a dedicated budget of something like 300,000 every year. Maybe it's 200,000, but it, it's a couple hundred thousand. And part of our purview as MMTC is to kind of help provide input to what the money should be spent on, um, the phasing of certain projects, possibly the selection of neighborhoods for the next traffic calm pilot, stuff like that. So. Um, it comes up every couple of months in some form or another, and it's, I would say, a fairly big part now of what we're looking at. So that's the NTMP. Uh, did I miss anything, MSO, MPO staff? Is that pretty much it? Maybe the 25 mile an hour speed limit. Oh, I knew I was forgetting something. I mean, it's part of enforcement. That, that was a big one, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so um, changing the speed limit on all residential roads was done through, um, input was gathered through an online survey, and based on the results, the speed limit of 25 miles an hour was chosen down from 30, and signs were placed all over the place, like thousands of signs, right? So that is now the new speed limit on residential streets. And everywhere except for it was already 20. Yeah, so parts of Book Creek and maybe parts of Old West. Old West. Yeah, that's all I can think of. Yeah. So yeah, um, that's NTMP. So what I think we were hoping to accomplish with the study session is prep for what we're hoping will be somewhat of a listening session coming up um, with members and representatives of the neighborhoods who would probably be most involved in these sort of projects and the pilot projects especially, um, to try to make sure that, I mean, really just to hear from them. Um, 
Do you like what you see so far? Do you understand what you're seeing so far? Do you know what the MTMP is all about? Do you understand how the budget works, how the phasing of the project works, who chooses what? And, and you know, assuming all of that is, is true and they're knowledgeable, I, I really want to hear more about feedback on the Old West Lawrence traffic pilot. We know what people in Old West Lawrence think because we've, you know, Dustin's gathered a ton of data on that and, and thoughts and input. So, um, but we kind of want to see what to do next, right? Like, based on lessons learned from Old West Lawrence and what people in other neighborhoods think they might want instead, how can we you know, improve the program, maybe roll out to more than one neighborhood at a time, change the, 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 the duration of the engagement and pilot um, so that we can get to more neighborhoods and stuff like that. So to that effect, I'm hoping to go through LAN, the Lawrence Association of Neighborhoods, and try to get at least four neighborhood representatives, ideally from four different neighborhoods, to, to come and talk to us. And what I want to do to make sure we're prepared is get some questions that can be kind of openers for a discussion. So the email that Dave sent out maybe two weeks ago or so was basically soliciting those questions from you all to you know, try to get the creative juices flowing here. So uh, I know Laura submitted some, but she's the only one of us not here, unfortunately. So um, I don't know if, if anybody's able to pull those up. I have them on my email, so I can get them eventually. But I mean, even if you didn't submit questions beforehand, I kind of want to open the floor to see what y'all think about it, how we might go about doing this. Basically, at this point, we've given ourselves a month before this your turn session. Damon, I think you said you had some questions, possibly, right? I did. So I might toss um, it to you if, if you're up for it. I was reading over them before the meeting today, and I kind of realized I was describing questions more so like it would be like a kickoff of questions to ask the next neighborhood that signs on. <laughs> so, hmm. but so I have a list of those, and I can read some if if you're curious. But I don't know if they'd be super applicable to just like all the neighborhoods at large, but. Okay. Um, so I guess here, one or two at least, just to start off with. So a new one I came up with tonight would, that wasn't like the others would be, um, if they maybe had any strategies for dampening the initial shock, especially to drivers as the next pilot project rolls out, like signage posted at the proposed site of the proposed design, et cetera. Um, but then, yeah, like I said, the other questions would be more for like someone signed on, okay, here's initial meet. Um, so for Old West Lawrence, they went in with a targeted goal of cutting down on vehicles cutting through. That was somewhat, somewhat unique based on the location of the neighborhood. Would there be any specific goals for this neighborhood other than just generally slowing traffic? And if so, how would you prioritize that goal above anything else? Uh, okay. Yeah, it's possible that in some neighborhoods, they may actually have like problem areas that they already know about. Like we know people do get hit here, or we know that people have trouble crossing the street here, or that you know cars had a house in this area. So. Um, it's, it's, it, it did seem like in Old West Lawrence, it was just kind of general, like just make them slower and make them less. But, you know, I know in East Lawrence, Brook Creek, for example, there were, I know people who have very specific complaints about very specific intersections. So um, I don't know how that would guide the pilot necessarily, other than maybe help the consultant 
pick an intersection first, but Dustin, in your experience, how, how much did they know specifically beforehand what they wanted to do? It, it was kind of the, the, the broad themes, the general, you know, reduce cut through volume, reduce speeds everywhere, but there were also specific intersections and locations identified. At, um, there was a, you know, high severity crash at 8th in Indiana, kind of right as we were starting the project, and so that generated a lot of discussion. But, um, and I think all these things are, um, you know, kind of lessons learned that I identified as well. Where, you know, we really need to, um, at the beginning of the process, when we select a neighborhood, cast that broader net to the whole neighborhood and not just assume that the neighborhood association speaks for everyone because we definitely heard that um, and but I, I think that you know asking for those locations that that was valuable in helping to identify where we need to collect data to confirm whether or not it is a, a problem location Dustin, does the MSO have data like crash data across the city or I mean because we're talking about gathering data from the neighborhood about crashes is there do we can we go into the the discussions with LAN with that information in hand uh, we we do have uh, re ready access to crash data historic crash data going back 10 years or more in in, in like a GIS map format so we can get to it quickly I don't you know <laughs> Yeah. be way too much to try and attach to an agenda or something but but we do have it where we can get to it and 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 see it quickly okay I think this might be yeah. to point out that we do actually have a pretty sweet GIS map that I think includes that data right Crash. yes yeah okay mm -hmm. so if any of you are not familiar with that it's it's super useful um, Jessica sends out a link from time to time <laughs> whenever one of us forgets where the link is framework or does it just sound like it no uh, well yes and no I'm not sure that they've committed to the complete vision zero like methodology overall yeah. or if they have just begun their like this like their campaign is called drive to zero but I don't know that they've set statewide targets yet as part of some of what they're doing on different safety planning um, so, but this zoomed in just to like biped, you can see which years are included. They can, you can see data sets. You can do this for every city across the state um, for their data sets if you want to look at intersection crashes. I mean, so I, my, my point is I think even more, this allows you to hone in a lot more on the data even than our locally developed tool because it's a statewide data set and it's available. So, oh, did, Yes, the answer, Hillary, is the data is available, and I think even more so the tools are getting better. Yep. Yeah. 
Great. Yeah, this is super helpful. Thanks, Jessica. One of the questions that I thought of was, uh, you know, in the last round, in soliciting for the, for the pilot project, there was, um, you know, a request for a proposal, and I think there were two, two neighborhoods that responded that one with a, a whistle on, so it was much more complete, and just asking the neighborhoods, you know, what, what kind of support do they need to help kind of generate a, a plan for a proposal? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, what are the barriers, maybe, yeah, right? Right, what are the barriers to um, applying or submitting a proposal? I guess that might be a good question for MSO. I mean, in the information that was requested of the neighborhoods, I don't think I ever actually saw what the application of the process looked like. Once you got into it and started discussing with the consultant and the neighborhood association, was any of the information requested in, in the application like, okay, this actually didn't really matter very much? Could it be a simple, like at the very extreme low end of complexity, does your neighborhood association want to participate in the traffic calming pilot? Um, and then at the very high end, like, tell me the intersections, who's going to be involved, how much does your neighborhood association speak for people, you know, stuff like that. So I'd, I'd be curious to see where it is now and where you think it might be able to go. Um, just so we're prepared for that question and answer, I guess. Yeah. I guess the <clears throat> initial application was probably more towards the more comprehensive option that you presented where we did ask for, you know, showing broad support from residents, from you know churches schools you know uh, i think we called them uh, sponsors maybe um and then also we did ask for a specific you know identify specific locations specific concerns you have and then um letters of support and so that was probably the main thing that kind of pushed old west lawrence over the edge was I think they had around 60 individual letters of support from residents within the neighborhood as, you know, not just, yes, we want to be a part of the program, but, you know, here's a specific concern I have. Okay. I know I, know I did not um, send Dave a question because I couldn't think of uh, any at the time, but uh, this conversation has kind of generated them. Um, how familiar are other neighborhoods of the project? Yep. Are, you know, do people know that it, that it happened in Old West Lawrence? I'm kind of intrigued about how prepared they're going to be going into this conversation and what type of engagement we're going to receive from the neighborhood association. I know that like the tr the, the constructions are fairly visible if you are in the area and you can tell, but kind of this whole program, I guess, how visible is it to the association? I think the media has made it very visible, at least for the pilot and the 25 mile an hour signs. Um, I think it's about it. I don't, I don't think the target enforcement ever really made it into the news too much, nor no. did the encouragement campaign, um, but the pilot most certainly did. And I feel like it did generate a lot of Facebook controversy. And I don't know how much of that is real and how much is just like the, the loudest 0.5%, but a lot of people heard about the pilot and probably couldn't connect it to anything larger, so, mm. which I feel like is one of the biggest issues. There's kind of a disconnect, like what are we trying to do here and what is actually happening on the ground and why do they actually matter being together? Um, I think it also depends on who you get. If we get somebody like a Gary Weber or Michael Allman, they will be very familiar with this program because yeah. they're pretty plugged in to the stuff. If we get somebody from like Schwegler or I'm trying to think of another, or like Deerfield, who's maybe not as plugged in to land, then I, th I think we might have a very different response. It'd be nice to get a range of that to, to kind of test your theory of like, do people understand it? Yeah. Um, 
We'd like to see both sides, really. We, we did reach out to land, but then also all the individual neighborhood associations with the application and, hey, this is happening. This is the process. Do you want to be a part of it? But, you know, we, we heard from some of them that, you know, they just didn't have the, the resources to, to do the application. Yeah. And I'd say in the two years since we did the application process, we, we get traffic calming requests frequently and from, from individuals or neighborhoods, and we've, we've been very intentional that we were following through on the Old West Lawrence project and then going to reevaluate it before we went out again. So um, uh, it's something I think that we will need to make another push before we do an application process again to make everyone re-aware of what the program is and how to apply and what the process is going to be. Um, and help them connect that those individual requests with, with what this project is and yeah. that they, how they are linked because people may not understand yeah. you know that's a, a program that that fits fits into that and that you're still getting their individual requests rather than um, on behalf of the neighborhood and, and we do when we receive those individual requests we do you know hey this is the program this is how we're approaching it now this is the, the process we'll have a an application open in the future again but so we're you know as those requests come in trying to to make sure they know about that so going forward they can be a part of it one uh one thing and i know this complicates everybody's life but you know my perspective again is coming from an all ages and abilities network i'm here with my baby that's why <laughs> you might hear some baby noises but it's how i can attend in the evenings anyways <clears throat> So I don't live in Old West Lawrence, but I benefit from there being a traffic calming in Old West Lawrence because people go through there that don't live in Old West Lawrence, right? So I wonder if when we're honing in on neighborhoods to engage with, if we're also engaging with surrounding neighborhoods, maybe in that pilot project area, because again, you know, it's not, it's not just homeowners or renters that are living in the area that benefit from traffic calming. It's it's everyone, right? Yeah, I think a lot of the complaints that were received were from people who probably didn't, were cutting through the neighborhood and all of a sudden found it much more difficult to do so or it slowed down there. And by people, I mean drivers. Drivers who were cutting through the neighborhood um, who suddenly found their path impeded or slowed and that inconvenience to them outweighed anything else that was going on. So um, it's, I guess it's tough to say sometimes because you would think logically that the people who live adjacent to the neighborhood in question would be probably traveling through it, but it might also be people coming from who knows where. Like I used to live in Pinckney and 4th Street is a major thoroughfare for people who work at the hospital who come from as far as Olathe and Topeka. So um, I guess it's hard to know who are the people who are going to cause a fuss? And you know, does their voice really matter as much as the people who live there? I think the the adjacent yeah. neighborhoods would probably matter more than those who are coming in from other cities. But uh, yeah, but I think you bring up a good point. You know, the people that are going to raise a fuss are the ones that are you know that are inconvenienced by driving through the area. I live off of Twenty First, and it's like the people that are complaining are the drivers here, yep. not the people that have benefited from using it. Yeah, I think it'll be a. I think that's the kind of question we can maybe pose to Land in the way of how can Land be a partner in this and help to manage 
I guess, expectations and input from neighborhoods that aren't the ones directly participating in the pilot. They kind of continue to be a conduit to us for extra information. I, I think they could be a partner, and enough of them are transportation interested that that could work. But it's, it, since, you know, us commissioners, this is not our full-time job, it is hard sometimes to keep that momentum going outside of these meetings, so it's something I would like to see happen, but it's tough sometimes, so. Yeah, I guess it, I think that's a great suggestion. It kind of has me thinking, especially if there's areas where we do get a lot of traffic calming requests. I mean, I live, I get, I have to look, I don't, I'm not a part of my neighborhood association, I'll be honest here. Um, but I recently moved out to Brook, Brook Creek, which is what I just figured out, like that the interactive GIS map. Um, I know East Lawrence deals with a lot of traffic because of Connecticut, and Connecticut is really um, busy all the time. My partner lives out um, on Connecticut, and 13th and Connecticut is one of the more busy intersections that doesn't have an always stop. But, you know, a lot of folks who live out in Brook Creek and Barker probably drive through that intersection and are kind of would then suddenly be inconvenienced by an always stop when people in East Lawrence, you know, would benefit from it. That's something that came specifically came to mind. So I guess I'm intrigued to see who, who attends next month uh, and kind of if we are keeping track of who attends and who doesn't attend and then potentially maybe reaching out to those um, associations who weren't able to make it to make sure is I'm sure that everybody, you know, if, you, if you're not as active in a neighborhood association but you do have traffic calming requests out um, and you don't really realize that's the pathway to improvement. I feel like when we get into the weeds of local government, not a lot, nobody knows what multimodal transportation commission is unless you're plugged in. And you might not understand that, oh, we could have a lot of development in our community if I, we happen to be involved in this conversation that happens in a monthly meeting um, for a commission you've never heard of. So that's kind of the worry, I, I guess the worry I have going into this is making sure that the people who aren't plugged in, but who may have a lot to say, kind of have the opportunity to say. This is the biggest challenge. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. I, I say that just because knowing from the neighborhood list, like for the neighborhood I live in, I contacted the woman at some point saying, hey, do you want to do this neighborhood thing? And she's like, oh, there's not an actual neighborhood association. I was just interested and no one else was listed. So I added my name and email to the list. <laughs> yeah. And so working on the other side of that, knowing that, that I think for many neighborhoods, the contact the city has on file is if no one, the person that was interested, mm -hmm sign their name there on the line. And that doesn't mean there's an organized neighborhood association or right. any organization of people happening within that physical area because it's all self-designated um, through contact with like planning and development services. Mm -hmm. I do think that's gonna improve now that there's a community engagement person on staff. And I think eventually community or neighborhood planners are supposed to be hired or maybe already and Howard, I feel like that will probably help um, have something to maybe coalesce around these neighborhood associations that seem to want to form but don't really have any strong motive force to get them there. Um, like, like some are very slowly forming. I think uh, what is it, Centennial or Babcock, like they're kind of coming to something, but even Land has struggled with that. And that's kind of their specialty is neighborhood associations. And even they struggle to reach out to associations that do exist, let alone ones that don't. Um, one of the questions that Laura had was, um, 
Does your neighborhood have any barriers to walkability and biking? And I don't know if that was meant specifically or generally, but I feel like it should be taken both. Um, like, are there any streets that just suck? Like, you cannot get across the street. Like, like uh, I don't know. Connecticut, for example, is difficult, you know? It's very wide. Or, you know, just in general, do you have barriers to walkability? Like, there aren't any good sidewalks, or like in North Lawrence, the streets are real skinny, and everything's a ditch right outside the... So mm-hmm. you can do it, but there's not a lot of room for error. So that would be interesting to kind of hear from neighborhoods as well and see if that maybe guides their thinking and what their application might look like. How are we doing on time here? Pretty good. How many people come to these sessions historically? You mean lands monthly meetings or the year turn thing? The year we only had one um, back in like 2019 was it 2020 it was pretty yeah it was a couple years ago oh, yeah <clears throat> and we invited specific people kind of gave them uh, well, leading questions or? you know yeah some the script and you know sat back and heard them okay so it was really an effort to help engage them like we didn't just say hey come to being and talk to us it was a little more structured than that so this, this is kind of the same idea, like what are the set of questions that could prompt a neighborhood to come in and share with us their thinking on their neighborhood and the safety of mm-hmm. getting around, primarily like walking and biking. Yeah. Is there an idea of the expected number of people who would come to this? I would, <clears throat> for four. I mean, I was gonna say for me, the success would look like three or four neighborhoods yeah. that would come. Okay. We only had two that applied to the process last time. Okay. So that could be, you know, a few more. And there are some neighborhoods that I think, like, have in the last in my, in my time, at the health department going back, like there are certain neighborhoods that are, always primed for this conversation. So. To me, those would be, I'd be assessing like, did those neighborhoods show up? Or are they still lost or confused um, yeah, like, about the changes that were made? Because it used to just be a pretty standard, you didn't have to be tied to a neighborhood, you just had to be a person who complained, and then the staff would say, here's the process, and then you would go out and kind of follow the script, and then you would get a project queued up, evaluated, and if it met the criteria, we put on a list, mm-hmm. and then that list was kind of a static. There's no funding committed to it. It was just an approved when funding's available. You know, the old traffic safety commission would authorize or kind of recommend to the city commission, hey, let's go ahead and put this traffic calming on that street. So it was one street at a time. It only engaged a couple of neighbors. It it wasn't. Um, very holistic, it didn't look at spillover effects. Um, if you were in a neighborhood that suddenly had something going on, you might be shocked because you never heard of it. Uh, so it was really, it wasn't very comprehensive. And it didn't think about the whole community, like 25 mile an hour speed limit change, that was gonna affect you regardless of this infrastructure piece. It was intended for us to say, how do we just help all neighborhoods? And, but it's still relatively new. People are probably confused still about it. So, like I would think Barker would be ready to do this. I don't know who applied the first time. Only so Old West and East, I think, right? North Lawrence. North Lawrence. So North Lawrence would be. A, they'll, they'll definitely. Be they would be primed for this. Barker kind of surprised me they wouldn't have applied. Um, yeah. 
Brook Creek, East Lawrence. And then that place yeah. that I don't know if it really has a name, somewhere around 27th and like east of Iowa over Louisiana, which is, I think, one of like the major transportation disadvantaged parts of the city, but also like historically underrepresented. That seems like a prime place to do a pilot like this, but like, who's the neighborhood leader? I don't even know what the neighborhood's called, honestly. I don't know if it really even has a name. That sounds right. To the west. To the west. Like, it, it, it abuts Iowa and, like, 23rd, I think. So, there's no neighborhood there. There was, but, but there was, you know, removal of uh, crossing that really activated that neighborhood once. And that, I mean, that stirred up a lot of the neighborhoods there to get involved in the Lawrence Pedestrian Coalition. That was Indian Hills. Indian Hills. That was Indian Hills. Here, let me just put the map for <laughs> yeah. the map. So what are you, you're, you're thinking of a neighborhood near that? Or that? He's the one that's mostly apartments. Transportation disadvantaged corner at basically south of 23rd yeah. Street. East, east of Iowa. Because Holcomb is west of there. It's like in between Holcomb and Indian. I mean, this probably... It's an odd area, but... So comparing with a new program versus the old program, they both have the challenge of it does assume that someone in your neighborhood is already kind of engaged and willing to do the work yeah. and it's not paid i mean no one's you know getting a paycheck for organizing their neighbors mm -hmm. um, it does take a lot more effort by the neighborhood now than it used to it used to just be basically one person and they just got some people to sign off on it and then the city had to do work <laughs> is there a reason why this kind of thing is not just generally open to the public but has to that like the person has to be associated with some kind of neighborhood or, or association of some kind? Can I'm not sure that they have to be tied to association or if they just have to demonstrate that they have some capacity to actually mobilize their neighborhood. Yep. Mm, but that, it, that, I think there is a tie to the neighborhood boundary. Mm -hmm. So it might not be um, completely devoid of the neighborhood area yeah the neighborhood associations aren't always formed in lawrence it's like my neighborhood is on the west side it's quill run there's no association but if you go to the city's website you'll see a map that shows the boundaries of the quill run neighborhood and there you go so what what happens now is if if on the city's list of contacts for the neighborhood there's no one listed, mm -hmm. then you can say, well, I'm willing to be the contact. And then occasionally planning will send you um, kind of the official notifications when there's a development that's happening that might impact your neighborhood. And I guess in theory, your job is to pass on that information as best you can, whether you have an association or not. Mm -hmm. And you'll also get reach out by realtors that are trying to figure out if there's a homeowners association that might have dues and things like that are kind of off the wall people might call you to ask you questions about the neighborhood that live in the neighborhood mm. like hey i want to change this and build a different fence and you know so you kind of this is I, that's my experience i get fielded by neighborhood neighbors in the community in the neighborhood and then i get staff that will reach out um with information and i got to pass it on and I'm always contemplating, well, do I need to organize this group or is it fine to be, right. to just use what I was told by LAN was at the very least get the, um, what's the neighborhood website? Next door. Next door. Get ne next door going because without a lot of effort, you can at least connect the neighbors together and then it's all on their own. 
And so that's what we did. Um, just started to invite people to the next door site. Mm -hmm. It kind of automatically builds a social network. Um, facilitates a lot of the communication mm -hmm. without taking it to the next level of let's formalize you know an association mm -hmm. and often that's I think all neighborhoods that aren't organized need is just facilitate how they can talk to each other but we, sorry we were intentional with the application to where we didn't require to be part of the neighborhood association mm -hmm. so you could just get a group of your neighbors together and apply but you you know that's where showing the broad support and sponsors mm -hmm. came in to kind of demonstrate that support without having an organized neighborhood association mm -hmm. thanks for that so there were a couple of questions just about the NTP in general that I've been pondering. Uh, I don't know if they would even be appropriate for this return session necessarily, so I was going to run them by you all and see if, if, if it's even worth kind of talking about that. Um, I think they kind of are the cause of some of the controversy and mixed opinions here. Um, the first one is, as we've been talking about the former method of asking for traffic calming in this street in front of my house versus the oh, neighborhood there's definitely a trade-off between traffic calming elements on their own and holistic solutions one is that if we do holistic solutions we kind of got to focus for a whole neighborhood for like a year or two which does mean that we can't do stuff for other neighborhoods if we're doing just the one-off solutions it may be fixing the exact problem on that street but there may be spillover effects when people now avoid that street because it's got a speed bump or something or a stop sign that they don't like that would have maybe been caught if we did that as a holistic method I don't know if there's a way to compromise by having like, say we asked the city commission and they actually obliged. We're like, can you give us like an extra 50,000 a year to also address that long list of like, I want to speed bump here because I know it's bad. Um, and then we can have that going and kind of get this drip drip of individual solutions as well as do the main event of the neighborhood wide pilots. Is that even worthwhile? From a traffic engineering perspective, is there a greater concern of spillover effects from a single single element. So does that happen anyway? I mean, in terms of, you know, different spots where speed bumps are put in, but they haven't been part of the, um, the traffic management plan. Yeah, we haven't put in any speed humps that are just isolated to a street. Okay. Um, uh, but I was just thinking of like trail. I mean, some of those were pretty yeah, well. yeah. That was but that was that was before. I mean, there, there are. I would say there are streets that we hear frequently about that would benefit from traffic calming that we know. Walker, uh, Harvard, Harvard West of Walker Russo was on the list before. Yeah. It's a made. You know, it's through a neighborhood. There's homes on it, even though it's a collector street. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to affect other streets, um, most likely over there because of just the street networks, not a grid network. Mm -hmm. um, so there, are, I think, and there's been other ones that have come across in the last two years that um, you know streets between neighborhoods that they're you know that would be that would not affect other streets that could benefit. So it's the yeah how how do we identify what those are and uh, I think we have a process though that's going to do that. So part of our safe streets and roads for all planning efforts 
is going to be a data-driven approach to a high injury network and proposal of countermeasures of which traffic calming and other built environment, other crossing improvements. I mean, Dave, wouldn't you see that as a good opportunity to identify some of those projects that are maybe more one-off or not tied to neighborhoods where we could look at implementing countermeasures? They'll also be eligible if they're part of our Vision Zero Safety Action Plan for federal funding under Safe Streets and Roads for All for implementation. Yeah, if they're on neighborhood streets, if they're no, no, I'm on local. They'd be eligible for federal money if they're part of our that mm -hmm. program separate of the neighborhood streets. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot because I feel like the trade-off right now is we had previously kind of a community-driven process, but it was really microscopic. We've had, we kind of shifted it to be a little more neighborhood-wide, but it still isn't always going to lead us to focus on the most dangerous parts of our community. And so when you have a neighborhood that's not organized, not connected, doesn't understand the process, doesn't have time because they work two, three jobs, yada, yada. Like, how can we still attend to dangerous areas of town that where it's just not safe to walk and bike? Um, if there's a way to do that, that feels really complimentary. And it doesn't mean we have to totally change neighborhood traffic management. We just lean on another program, kind of like how we lean on safe routes to school to address one population of our community that we care about, which is kids walking and biking to school. That feels a nice, like a nice compliment. Do you think that there is a potential, I don't know, I guess conflict in approach between Vision Zero and Safe Street Stroll versus the NTMP? I know you were saying there's something on the way that streets are looked at is a little bit different. So we're doing the five E's, right? And maybe in Vision Zero, it might be more about like safe uh, vehicles and and streets that are designed safely from the outset, which is a little bit different from kind of retrofitting them to be more traffic calming. So do you think there's a risk that we have to rethink NTMP? Or? I don't think that statement's completely true. Okay. In the sense that I think the safe streets and all for program and doing a Vision Zero Safety Action Plan, it's gone away from the five E's. The new approach is called a safe systems approach. So if you want to do some education, YouTube some videos, I think part of our process is going to be doing a lot of community education around safe systems. Um, it's about, it has some principles and tenets in it around, you know, uh, humans aren't perfect. We have to create environments that save lives, you know, for imperfection in some of those situations. It brings in emergency response too, and not necessarily law enforcement in the same way as we think about safe systems. It's the system, the operationally. So I think I think in that regard, what, what's different about the two programs is how they're thinking about the network spatially. Where one is very much focused to a geographic area where there may be a street network in the neighborhood, but the other is thinking about how the network functions as a whole. Also, that includes collector and arterial streets, which may not be part of the neighborhood. Those usually are the boundaries of a neighborhood. So it's just different in that sense about project location. But I think they're complementary to each other in the sense that they are, they are both recognizing all, use, all users really about lowering volumes and or speeds where it's appropriate. So it's not appropriate necessarily to lower volumes on some of the higher volume streets where we're trying, where our community has designed streets to funnel traffic out of neighborhoods. But 
So there's like different approaches. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of I the think, answer I was hoping to hear. I think they're okay. I think, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I think last time there was uh, something you said that got me a little where he's like, are we going to have to change our approach in NTFP with new stuff? But it sounds like because they're at slightly different scales, the funding source is different, you know, they, they share enough in common that it's not really going to be a conflict, which is good news. So, okay. I, I, I imagine, though, there's some things we can glean. Exactly. Yeah. To further continue to, like, improve on the microscopic part of, like, neighborhood traffic, you know? Yeah. Like, what, what more tools can we add to our toolbox for the education part or for the engineering part? Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's going to be plenty that will come out of this uh, study, master plan. I forget what it is. Yeah, plan. I think elevating just our education about it, mm -hmm. like you're talking about in terms of different countermeasures, but also the data and understanding the data and what it tells us in terms of getting to a very specific strategy that we're going to try to drive to zero. Um, there's a lot of efforts happening, just like the statewide effort, that I think are all going to come into play as we talk about safety. The state is also working on a vulnerable road users assessment, and so they have a, they have some separate statewide driven work that they're doing that will you know we're, we've been consulted on and will be a part of I think on a larger statewide level about how they're going to prioritize safety. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the education component of like methods and and like different kinds of infrastructure because I do feel like another source of consternation was that I don't really know how to say this in a good way but I, I think people knew what they knew and they wanted to see what they were familiar with and anything different was like well what is this it does not work obviously like there was a couple of comments as I was going through ill-advised uh, Facebook things where I was like why don't we just put a stop sign at every intersection like mm -hmm. because that has been researched and found to not work and actually make things worse or like why don't we just put speed most everywhere that was working fine was it though not really you know so it, it's almost like I don't know it, it, there's, a, there's a silly quote I come back I come back to a lot with stuff like this where like I think Henry Ford is quoted as saying, if I had, peop if I had asked people what they really want, they would have just said a faster horse. Like, they didn't realize that what you really wanted is like a whole new thing that you hadn't possibly conceived of, right? And I think that's sort of the scenario here. Like, when people are confronted with traffic circles for the first time, or roundabouts instead of intersections, like, what is that? Once you get used to it, you start to realize, that, like, oh, okay, there's a method in the madness. So I think the education part is probably pretty critical in terms of telling people, like, some of these elements you're gonna see are not things you're used to, and they may seem like counter counterintuitive, right? Um, so, I mean, D Dustin, you've probably done a ton of that already in your outreach with West Lawrence because you've had to help explain some of those, those odd things, like the yep. diverters and the chicanes, so. That, um, that was definitely something we heard was that people just didn't understand the purpose of the chicane. Yeah. Sean, did you live in Boulder when they did their like street labs or street pilots where they piloted all of these new transportation solutions? That may be a good example of how to approach some of these things in the future. Folsom was notorious for being a surprise every time you went down it. There'd always be some <laughs> interesting new traffic technology that you would encounter. Um, and I'd say they changed it up every year or two, and they, and they would gather feedback from the public, but they isolated it just to that street. So that's where they would try new stuff. So that's something I was actually just thinking about as far as having these people come in. How much um, data is there that this committee historically has gathered of other communities that are like doing it great? You know, we want to be like them. And how do they do it? What, what tools are they using? And how did they get to that? What was, what was the path? 
because it might help them understand because you don't know what you don't know because if somebody's let's say born and grown up and lived in Lawrence their entire lives they might not understand what other communities might be using to make life better to make transportation easier increase quality of life decrease accidents whatever the case may be so um, as far as this discussion I'm, with with these community reps maybe it would be helpful to be like hey here's a bunch of stuff that you've never seen in Lawrence that's kind of neat so yeah. I, I do wonder how do you educate them if they get selected like how do you how do you or even how do you educate them before they even apply because it does feel like they're going to have to learn some stuff along the way so it's like when is the best time to give them uh, an introduction to you know you can't do anything you have to do some things that meet requirements and then expose them to the multitude of of options that we, we are, did are, are already kind of acceptable with old west lawrence i guess that was kind of our first kickoff meeting was traffic okay. calming 101 you know these are options that other people are using this this is the you know the intent of this device this is how it works this is what it looks like that's where we started and so we we kind of did have hopefully all the tools in the toolbox as we went forward but we did get back to the well people like speed humps they know they work so that's yeah. what they want yeah is, oh. is this thing next week is it i'm sorry in a few weeks is it too broad a uh, potential topic to do educational type things in association with it or is it is it worth covering some well we have it's only one hour right i think it's worth covering in, in terms of trying to set up what maybe we need to do more of educationally but m maybe not with these representatives specifically but like as we go forward representatives in general will need to know about this sort of stuff so i, I think it'd be good to ask them like what materials would you need to help convince the rest of your neighborhood association to right. move forward with this? I still think education is a board component of it. I just don't know if we need to do traffic calming one-on-one necessarily. Um, they also did, like Old West Lawrence clearly did their research and looked at other communities and then came back, well, they did it here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it was like, well, they, they did something, but it's not really acceptable in our community. You know, So it's hard to know when you're looking at another community that this meets the requirements and not every community tries to follow those rules I guess so is there a is there a tester street in this town you know like <laughs> that's what I was thinking you're going Folsom with is the tester street. yeah he, like that's that's where the city tries stuff out and mm. and everybody's very patient with what the how, city does how with that street. busy is that street very very oh, busy okay. it's a very busy street it goes right up to the university it's it's got lots of stoplights Lots of crossroads, lots of bikes, lots many, of cars. How many lanes does it belong to any particular neighborhood? And do a lot of out-of-towners drive on it as well? Yes. Look it up. Uh, it, <laughs> like, are we talking two or three in either direction? Like, is it a big old street or just like a mass street, you know? Like, busy but not huge. It's, it's a, not also, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a street in Lawrence that it would be similar to as far as a throughway. Uh, also on what connects, not quite 23rd Street, but it's it, it connects a lot of the the east west streets. It's the it's the biggest kind of artery between them. Okay. And it's as like far 19th as 19th Street space. Yeah, it's, it's like a Norton. Be too big. 
but maybe yeah, more the the so that between like downtown like and Iowa where it's, it's like it's, 35 miles an hour. And I'm thinking like that neighborhoods and yeah. yeah between Iowa and downtown. Yeah. It's technically wide enough in order to have four lanes if it wanted to, but it doesn't because half of the total area is taken up by bike lanes on either side. Yeah. So again, like they've been experimenting with putting big uh, concrete blocks in there, tall things, but people kept smacking into the tall thing because yeah. there was no um, there, there was no uh, damage done to your vehicle if you just smacked into these yeah. these high vis things. So, you know, like they learned those uh, fun fun. It sounds like a collector street, and our work is really around residential. But I, I think getting maybe to the idea of how do you help people to see possibility, there are places I would point to in Lawrence to say, oh, you, if you haven't seen that, just go over blah, blah, blah. Like when old Louis Lawrence was talking about how they wanted the traffic circles and they wanted stop signs, it's like, no, 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 they're, they're not, they don't usually go together. In fact, that's an exception to the rule. So, well, no, 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 we have to have both. Because that's how the pilot worked. I'm like, just go to Harvard, go f drive west, and that's how it is until I guess you cross Wakarusa. Hadn't thought about that, that that's when they stop having all the roundabouts. But if you're on Harvard, it's like constantly roundabout here, roundabout here, another roundabout. And there's some bumps, you know, some speed humps, but it's mostly like roundabout lane. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a way to point uh, neighborhoods that are thinking about doing this to you know, certain parts of the different other neighborhoods where they can kind of get a sample of what it looks like and how the neighborhood, you know, gets impacted by it. Um, the what's it, the university, what's the one called over here? South of the University Heights. You know. So that one for 10 years had these, these kind of ridiculous traffic circles that were designed to be temporary, but they stayed there for a decade or whatever. And now they have regular traffic circles. And, you know, Old West could have just walked on over and taken a look at that. <laughs> um, probably, you know, it's a grid layout, so it's familiar, like the same style. Compared to if you go west and you go to Harvard, that's not a grid design. So you're, maybe you'll just feel like, well, that doesn't work for us. So maybe pointing people to examples of the different things that we see in a reference book, you know? Where do we have raised crosswalks? Well, we have them in here, here, here. So I really like the idea of a pilot street of all the weird stuff, like a Folsom street. I think that I'd love to table that discussion for an, another possible study session. It seems like it might conform more to the safe streets for all, because it sounds like maybe Folsom's more of a collector or, or even an arterial <laughs> to a certain extent. I, I still think it's a really cool idea. I don't know if that's necessarily yet something we can pursue, but once we start getting into the safe streets for all vision zero planning, I think that that idea could come back and have some legs. Um, I also have just seen that it's just past six o'clock, so we gotta start wrapping this thing up. Do we have any, I guess, forward action items? I, through Dave, or just, you know, uh, CC and you, can reach out to Lan and say like, hey, here's what we're gonna plan. We'd like any neighborhood representatives who can to come, please limit it to one representative per neighborhood, ideally, if there's gonna be a ton of you. Um, here's what we're gonna talk about in general, and I'm prepared to discuss NTMP. Is there anything else we need to do, we think, in the meantime? Um, so do you have a set of questions that I think you're... from what we've talked about, I, th I think I can synthesize a couple of topics at least. Okay. And then we can maybe start firing off the actual questions. 
The one thing I wanted to add that I haven't heard yet is, I know we, pretty much everybody thinks bike ped, but if we could expand it to think also about uh, people that are using transit, that could be helpful. Um, because there might be a neighborhood that sees an improvement around transit access that you know would just give us one more um, piece of that multimodal puzzle. Okay. Any other final thoughts from the commissioner staff? I would just offer. I know Old West Lawrence, or they've offered to. You know, kind of share the lessons learned. I don't know if that's appropriate to invite them next month. I would really hope that at least Charlie could come. Yeah. Uh, Tressa, I think, is the neighborhood representative. Maybe, unless she still is. Maybe it's Eric. Um, Kyle might be an interesting voice as well because he was kind of the opposition leader, right? So just to kind of see how things came together. Um, so, yeah, I'll make sure when I reach out to Landis specifically, tell all this, Lawrence, like, we'd like your guys' input if you can because you've been through it. So. And I'll just do my best to kind of coalesce these questions we've had into a couple topics. And um, if there's anything that you are particularly um, is interested in that slips through the cracks, we can always just bring that up during the meeting. So hopefully there should be time. So that's it. Um, in that case, we're adjourned until 6.15 and our normal meeting starts. Lively discussion, everybody. Are we ready? Yes. Yeah. Right. Cool. All right, everybody. Sorry to cut off the conversations here. <laughs> All right. Um, welcome back to the normal agenda portion of the June 5th Multimodal Transportation Commission monthly meeting. Uh, we've already done all of our preamble and hybrid meeting uh, rules, so we're just going to launch right into item B, approve the minutes. So I'd ask for any potential revisions or comments or questions on the May 1st meeting minutes. And if not, then I'll ask for a motion to approve. I move to approve the minute as written. I second. Okay. First by Commissioner Rosa, second by Commissioner Collette. All in favor, raise your hands. It's unanimous. Okay. Next part is general public comment. The public is allowed to speak to any items or issues that are not scheduled on the regular agenda. Public comment will not be received for staff items, commission items, or calendar. Each person or organization will be limited to three minutes. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented at this time. Individuals are asked to come to the microphones, sign in, and state their name and address. Speakers should address all comments to the commission. And I guess I should add, it's not just come up to the microphone, but also online. Since we, well, any comments in the room? No. Um, any comments online? General public comment. All right. Um, Christina, who is first? Uh, I think JT was actually first. Okay. Uh, did you say JT was up first? Yes. Okay. Mr. Thornburg, sorry, Mr. Thornburg, um, can you please go ahead with your public comment? Is it? I'd like to know if it's the policy, a new policy of this body, that public comment is not allowed during study sessions. 
Mm. Yeah. If that's if, if, if I'm only allowed to comment, then I guess you're not going to answer that. Um, my comment would have been to point out the lessons unlearned by the West Lawrence um, traffic um, program, calming program. Um, I related that before. I will say that as an engineering control, um, it, it was not addressed as such. The Idaho stop. I'll point out that another Midwest city, another Midwest state will be adopting that this summer. That's Minnesota. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for your comment. And though we usually don't address uh, comments, that was a good question. We definitely do need to have public comments on study session. So I apologize for that um, oversight. I don't think I saw anybody on at the time, but I may have not looked at the right time either. So that one's on me. Um, as for the lessons learned by the Old West Lawrence pilot, I think bringing up the idea of not just engineering um, controls, but also of legal things may be of interest. I don't know if it's necessarily within the purview of the NTMP, but it's certainly something that we could continue to engage with the neighborhood representatives on. So, Okay. Um, Mr. Allman, are you up next? I saw your hand virtually raised. Hi, yes. Thank you, Mr. Kuzmiak. Can everybody hear me? Yep. Okay, thank you. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the city engineer and staff for uh, the, the installation, finally, of the bikeway between 23rd Street and 19th Street on Naismith Boulevard. I hope everybody's had a chance to look at it and or ride on it. Um, Multimodal Transportation Commission deliberated long and hard on getting that done and getting that uh, goat path finally made into a real transportation corridor, completing that uh, spoke of the Lawrence Loop. That was the last gap. So thank you for doing that. I think it was a good job. Um, secondly, last November, the Multimodal Transportation Commission on the 7th of November, um, you discussed and, and adopted, as I recall, the um, bicycle pedestrian design policy guidelines that was developed by Trek consultant. Um, a lot of that was policies and design guides, as it says, but there are several things in there that I'm wondering when they will be taken to the city commission because they will have to be implemented as ordinances. They're not policies, that, such as the right turn on red um, removal. That would have to be a city ordinance. Uh, the bicycle stop is yield, or the Idaho stop, as John Thornburg just pointed out. That would have to be an ordinance by the city commission. And most likely, the reverse angle back-end parking would probably be drawn up as an ordinance as well. So, uh, it, you know, it's just kind of in limbo now. It's never gone beyond November 7th. And it certainly needs to if, we, if you're serious about pursuing those. Um, and then finally, that whole policy guidelines by Trek, that was initially predicated on uh, 
an ongoing discussion of what Lawrence considers as the proper, correct, safe, all ages appropriate bikeway that many of us do not agree that the single uh, white stripe uh, white stripe is not a safe way to do a bikeway that all ages and, and ability bicyclists typically will not use that. Uh, so that discussion never appeared in this policy uh, that you discussed on November 7th. That, and, let, and it was the very reason that policy came about, that whole discussion. Like to have that discussion sometime. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Oman. Okay. Are there any other public comments online? Okay. Um, all right. Next up then is the the regular agenda. So agenda item number one is to receive the Lawrence Loop plans from 8th Street to 7th Street, Santa Fe Station project, field check, and provide feedback. Program Manager with Municipal Services and Operations. Um, the agenda item tonight, yes, to just receive the field check plans for this um, unconstructed segment of the loop. Uh, to get your bearings straight, looking at the, the map there on the screen, north is up. You've got 8th Street running east to west on the south, or the bottom part of the page. So um, this is a, the, the trail section that'll connect from our 8th and Delaware Street um, shared use path up to the Santa Fe Depot uh, project that com completed some shared use path of that project. So it's a, just a small gap project there to get from A to B uh, behind the uh, historic Kwanzaa Hut property. Um, typical um, section is similar to what we just constructed there to the south going towards Hobbs Park. Um, and uh, about the only change that uh, we've made to these plans or going to be making these plans is the installation of a raised crossing on 8th Street uh, per the recently passed guidelines. That was one of the options we've got and recommended. So um, that is different from what you see on the plans. And um, with that, happy to entertain questions. Okay. Any clarification questions from the commission? Uh, yes, I have one. Um, at that intersection at, at 8th Street, um, a really blind intersection you know because of the of the parking that that is uh, facing um, eastbound on uh, 8th Street and I'm curious whether uh, raised crosswalk is and it's also a uh, just a it's not a uh, always stop at that intersection you know three-way it would be a three-way stop <clears throat> you have to get out into the intersection pretty far before you can see uh, traffic coming and I'm concerned that a raised crosswalk might not be enough in terms of because there's quite a bit of truck traffic that goes back and forth right at that right at that intersection and they're traveling at pretty good speed sometime and I'm just curious whether um, you know that raised cross crosswalk will be sufficient uh, for someone coming across on the on the path uh yeah, the, the interesting situation is the railroad crossing right there and the control arms that are there makes it a little more difficult to, to add any additional, I think, signalization. Mm -hmm. um, something we can look at, though. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it doesn't seem to be, well, the traffic coming from, from the east is not a problem because, you, you know, the, someone walking on a bicycle, they can see from that direction. But I think it's the other direction that creates the, creates the problem, that you're not able to see uh, traffic coming and, um, you know, if someone doesn't pay attention to the even raised crosswalk, I think it's still going to be a pretty dangerous situation for, um, for someone crossing on the loop at that, at that point. Is it possible uh, to put in a pedestrian hybrid beacon there, or is that part of the conflict with the, um, the uh, railroads or the Amtrak station? Yeah, I, I think it'd be difficult to install any signalization right next to the railroad crossbucks that control that crossing. You think a stop sign on that, uh, on the west corner would be? For eastbound 8th Street traffic. Yeah, for eastbound, you think that that would be in conflict with the, with the um, railroad crossing? I, I think we'd have to look to see if it's warranted. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like you to see, you know, if there's something that could be done there. Would something like a rectangular rapid flashing beacon um, be useful in that situation? It's not a traffic control device. I'd have to consider that. Okay. Is the, this is a question, is the blind spot from Delaware? So if you're, or is it? It's, at, it's on 8th Street. So for traffic on 8th Street, but you're crossing 8th Street. So if you're going, uh, if you're northbound and then crossing over 8th Street you know, on the continuation of the path, that's where when you come up to that intersection, you can't see traffic there until you get pretty far out into the intersection. So traffic going eastbound, eastbound. on 8th, there's a blind spot mm -hmm. there. Okay. Well, it's a blind spot for the, yeah, for either one, you know, for them to see that someone's at the, at the crosswalk and then also for... You know, if you're on a bicycle, you know, right now there's no, there's no path, and so you're on the street, and you have to basically, you know, stop and, <laughs> and get out into the street pretty far before you can see that there's a, there's no cars coming. I mean, isn't that the typical practice you would do as a cyclist crossing the street, though, is look before you cross? I mean, I travel this but thing like three times a day. In the, uh, like I say, you have to be in the intersection, all the way into the intersection to see that there's no traffic coming. I guess, I, as somebody who travels that quite regularly, I don't really have that problem. As soon as I get to the, the edge, like, I can see everything. Um, but I, I may just not have the same perspective necessarily. Well, and maybe there are not always cars parked there. That might be, that could be a difference too, but. Um, is the crosswalk going to be oblique like the crossing is? Sorry, is the race crosswalk going to be as oblique as the current um, proposed crosswalk is? I think it will be on an angle. I think it will be skewed slightly. Uh, maybe think what we've got there at 10th Street we just constructed. And I, I want to back up to Commissioner Bryan's question, too, about putting in a, an RFB there. And I think the real issue there is anybody traveling eastbound, they get over the railroad and somebody actuates that, that crossbuck's coming down them and we can't trap anybody there. So I think that's probably going to be out of the question. Well, that's why, I mean, I thought that's why the, um, the hawk signal would be inappropriate, but a, a flashing yellow light doesn't mean you have to stop, right? I mean, I can still your, see your point. It, 
creates confusion. The pedestrian or bicyclist thinks someone's going to see that and stop. I mean, technically, they would still be expected to stop if there's someone in the road, right? So it's a it seems like a difficult place for someone coming across the tracks. The reason I was bringing up the oblique crosswalk is because I think it's a, it's, it would be cool. Um, anytime you have an oblique crossing that has a grade, it's much more obnoxious to kind of go over it. I think it would probably slow people down more than a perfectly orthogonal crosswalk, um, which I think would be a good thing. I don't know if the cement truck driver is going to like it, but I mean, you do what you got to do. So I guess I would just encourage that if there's any way to keep it oblique, I think that would be benefit. I think that utilities that are existing there in the situation and the geometry is going to kind of force us into that situation. Yeah, it's like there's two stormwater manholes that you just can't get around really, so right. that makes sense. Cool. All right. Is the gate in the de details meant to be access to the Kresnik property? Yes. Cool. I wonder if he sees it as kind of like, this is a, a bike oasis on the Lawrence Loop, you know, come on in, the gate's open during business hours. That'd be kind of cool. It's been a collaborative effort. Yeah. It's nice that the easement has gone a lot better here than it has at the other Lawrence Loop area. So, positive developments. Okay, are there any other technical questions, clarifications from up here? Yeah, I think Commissioner uh, Collette's question made me think do we have a standard for a certain distance that parking has to be daylit away from a crosswalk for visibility issues like this one we're talking about um i don't know if we've got anything in code i think we'd technically look at site distance for something like that in intersection yeah there's intersection site distance for stop signs and vehicles turning um as far as the distance to the um, crosswalk, um, which is on the other, which is on the east side, I guess, and there's no parking over there, I don't, wouldn't see that there would be an issue with the parking. But um, certainly understand the concern with the visibility there on the corner, on the west side. Yeah, and as Jake mentioned, it's just it's, it's a challenge with where the you know, how we would control that intersection with having the uh, railroad crossing there. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm just concerned about <laughs> completing a section of the loop that you know becomes something that's you know still not safe for people or you know people who are particularly inexperienced in using that and kind of assuming that oh this is part of the path and I can just go through here but um, you know I understand about the the um, you know railroad and certainly from the other direction you know the visibility is good and the traffic slows down because they're going over the railroad tracks but it, it, they come at a pretty good speed sometimes coming from from the west yeah it, was, it made me think of there, if there's any I mean on that street I don't think there's any traffic or I guess calming mechanism in that area. I'm trying to think. I don't think there's a speed bump. Uh, I think it's. I think there's a stop sign at what is it, New Jersey, going onto that corner. But I think that's just an all from Connecticut. I think it's. There's no stop signs or anything. No, there's not. So I guess maybe East Lawrence can. 
take part in the traffic plan. I am. Um, so just kind of a completely random aside, as I'm exploring the area through the eyes of Google Street View, just to kind of like try to rectify, you know, what's on Street View with what I see. Um, I just happened to land in a 2011 shot where there, there is no street there, yeah. <laughs> which is wild. I didn't realize it was quite that recent. I've only lived here for six years and didn't know how uh, interesting it was over there. <laughs> it's just grass in the street and everything. So I've come a long way, I guess is what I'm saying, to having not even a street and now being about to complete the Lawrence Loop across this street. So going in the right direction for sure. Um, any more from up here before I turn it over to public comment? Okay. Anybody online who wishes to make a public comment? Okay. Um, I don't think we're, we really need to do anything. We're just providing feedback. So feedback received, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for the presentation. All right, moving along to our next agenda item. Consider recommending approval of the Safe Routes to School Plan Amendment and receiving information on the 2023 to 2024 Adult Crossing Guard locations. This is a long one. <clears throat> Thank you, Jake. Good evening, I'm Jessica Mortinger, Transportation Planning Manager for the MPO, and I'm here tonight with Dustin Smith and Brad Harrell, and we're gonna jointly kind of present to you the work that we've been doing for the 2023-24 Safe Routes to School Revised Routes, um, Bike Ped Project Identification, and Crossing Guard work. Um, the Safe Routes to School, we're gonna walk through the, sir, the presentation of the memo that we released publicly and review some of the public comment um, to collect your feedback this evening. The Safe Routes to School plan has a provision in it that uh, recommends uh, revisions to the Safe Routes to School routes based on changes to boundaries. Um, USD 497 this year uh, made the decision to close Pinckney and Broken Arrow schools and as a result uh, shift a ma majority of elementary boundaries which required us to go back through a process like the one we did, what we replicated from the Safe Routes to School planning process um, that we originally did in the plan. Our Safe Routes to School plan, um, just at a high level, for those of you not familiar, has three different sets of maps that are accompanied with it. And this is, this is important, and we can talk about it later um, in more detail if you have questions, but we're looking at the infrastructure maps today um, with, this, with this plan. And as we think about establishing routes, that's recognizing for us to think uh, uh, this route planning and evaluation normally would happen on a five-year cycle. It's happening special because of the boundary changes. Um, it's required because the Safe Routes to School designated criteria is integrated into many of the other plans and processes that you see around prioritizing projects that would be on safe routes. Um, the infrastructure maps recognize in some places that we've designated something a safe route, it may not yet have infrastructure. This is why it's an infrastructure planning map. Um, this is also why we have a set, a series of maps, and we realize this 
from our after our first safe routes to school process because um, just being called a safe route doesn't necessarily we're meaning uh, to encourage students to walk along that route and that's going to be important tonight and some of the network we'll look at and we'll I'll point out uh, at least one area and you, you may see others but we then accompany that in a follow change in an annual process to create encouragement maps and those are maps we work through public health to distribute to the schools and post on the safe routes be active safe routes website and those are maps where even though it's a safe route we may not be encouraging kids to walk or bike on it, particularly if there's not existing infrastructure. So we would note maybe where infrastructure is missing or existing on those maps and use those as tools to encourage kids to walk and bike. You're not going to see those this evening. Those will be made over the summer um, after the adoption of our updated safe routes to school routes. We then also work in partnership um, with USD 497 and we provide them technical guidance to create some traffic circulation uh, maps when we get responses um, about information such as where bike parking might be and where bus pullouts might be and those are uh, traffic circulation it's more of a site specific map and those graphics are also used on the encouragement flyer as an education tool for parents so both the circulation and encouragement maps are not something that we have before you this evening those will be worked on over the summer in partner relationship um, with the school and our existing conditions and public health to develop those so what we're talking about tonight is infrastructure maps the infrastructure maps we recognize that kids live on every street in our community and we have limited resources for transportation investments um, and so we really have begun this process when we went through the first safe routes to school process to prioritize areas where we believe that we can funnel children into schools and we do that by using a data-driven process to recognize we receive um, we look at the new boundaries um, and we receive anonymous student addresses from the school district so in this case we would have had K through 4 grade addresses from the current school year and we look at those addresses where they would fall within each boundary in relationship to what school they were going to um, that's not public information that we share in terms of student densities um, that's that belongs to the school district and they haven't given us permission to do that but we use those to understand in relationship to walk sheds so we use the model to create walk sheds out from the school to understand where half mile one mile one and a half miles lie and then and consider other elements like existing routes, speed limit, traffic control, existing sidewalk or street network, street classification, existing bicycle facilities, crossing guards, or other crash or other information that we know of as from in relationship to our multimodal transportation planning to develop a set of routes that we can use as a high-level network where we can prioritize investments. Particularly, we're looking at sidewalk um, gap and bikeway improvement projects, although these safe routes to school routes feed in to other things like sidewalk um, improvement and other programs in terms of prioritizations because we've recognized the value the community has placed on prioritizing infrastructure and improvements on these routes so things like future crossing you know other things that are related to in the school area traffic control policy w would come into this also so we've done this process and what I'm going to show you 
in regard to that, we'll walk through kind of briefly what those changes looked like. So for Cordley, you can see the addition um, south along Louisiana Street, and this is the northern section here is no longer within that boundary, so we're proposing removing that and adding this section um, to get the students who live in this southern, uh, south of uh, West 23rd Street. Um, in and a route to school. I'm not gonna talk about the crossing guards yet. I'm gonna, they're identified on this map in terms of where we propose pilots and existing ones that continue to meet the warrants, but that'll be a separate part of the conversation. Um, we have Deerfield Elementary School. So as I talk about, when we talk about infrastructure routes, this green line along West 2nd Street crossing in McDonald, this is a place where we know there is not, there are large gaps and not um, great crossing infrastructure that we would want crossing improvements before we would encourage kids to walk and bike in this area. And um, so this is somewhere where the Safe Routes to School Working Group identified an interim route that could be used that has grade separation and infrastructure connectivity in the interim um, until additional gaps could be filled in this area. The school district also has identified that they planned um, along this boundary area to attempt to bus these students also, so that was a consideration that waits in our reality around um, that proposal. But this is an example where the difference in the maps really makes a difference because we would not identify that as a route for kids to use currently in an encouragement map, but it needs to be on our planning map and identified as a route so we can identify future improvements that can be prioritized in our process. Um, you'll see here, here with Hillcrest and boundary changes, again, um, the remainder of the Pinckney students um, from this area and um, funneling um, into Hillcrest um, up 9th Street. Some of these areas, as you look at where the density is and where you're going to connect students, it became very clear to us. You know, as we look at, you, you know, you think about street classification, we mentioned that earlier. There, it, some, some places there are no other connection options. Um, and so this option up 9th Street as opposed to down 6th in Iowa is really the route option that I believe we have to identify and develop um, to do that. And the reality of the school boundary, above the school closures and the school boundary changes is more kids are going to be forced to cross higher volume, higher posted speed streets. And that's the reality of the situation based on decisions that were made by the school district. And I think we had a lot of those conversations with the working group and what we presented to knowing that we presented um, to the public. Uh, sorry, Jessica, can you clarify which working group, the one, the, the, the boundary change one or the Safe Routes to School one? I'm sorry, for the Safe Routes to School working group. So when I, yeah, the, there is, you're right, a separate boundary um, committee, but in this regard, I'm talking about the Safe Routes to School working group, and um, our role was really reactionary to the boundary committee and the school board's decision where we were made aware of the when the public was, when, what the boundaries were gonna be proposed to be and what they were. So. Part of that in terms of the timeline we had was also very compressed, and yeah. you'll hear a little bit more about that because that's largely gonna impact crossing guards um, in that conversation and the route we did to make sure we had ensued enough public process into this um, because we had to make a lot of decisions in reaction to what, what decisions were made by the school board. Right. Um, here is Langston Hughes. This is a density issue in terms of students um, north of 6th Street 
and looking at that crossing. New York Elementary um, didn't ha had ch some changes to the boundary, but they were a lot more minuscules. It was a you know it's their Montessori pilot school, and um, there wasn't a lot of density in this area as grid, so we didn't add additional route because it wasn't easy to identify additional route you could choose because it's so dispersed on the grid in terms of density. So there was no changes. Additionally, there's no changes to Prairie Park. Um, here, uh, Quail Run, you can see an addition of uh, Overland Drive in terms of a lot of student density that was added um, there. Um, Schwegler, you can see the addition of this section, what used to be um, Broken Arrow route into school and the removal of this section because these students mostly can choose either a northern route or a southern route. Um, when we get to the public, I'll mention this now, but when we get to the public comment, I think, you know, there's some confusion about how we chose routes or people recognize that, you know, this is a mile and a half, but they could walk a shorter distance if they used Louisiana to 23rd Street, but we would have not chosen that as a route because it's a higher volume, higher speed route with a lot of turning movements along an arterial street as opposed to taking a route through a neighborhood. Um, and so we tried to make decisions like that based on the data we were looking at. Um, Sunflower Elementary, you can see a change. There's a large density population south um, of 31st Street. Um, and getting really, you know, past that one and a half mile, but recognizing um, there may be some non-public street network that people are taking to get to this section of route that we would be determining, adding. Um, Sunset Hill Elementary, here's a shift kind of also in density and where we're seeing um, students and that reflects those changes. And then in addition at Woodlawn, which did not have a boundary change, um, but we did see a lot of increased density in that area that resulted in us adding a section of, of route there as we looked through all of these schools. Okay, Dustin, I'll let you talk about what that means for projects. Thanks, so the <clears throat> next topic that I wanted to, to talk about was after we had revised the routes, then we took those uh, new routes or existing routes and then overlaid our identified pedestrian and bike projects. And so that's what you'll see in the, the next, um, I guess, couple sections of maps and tables. So the first map is the uh, pedestrian projects overlaid on the, on the uh, proposed routes. So again, the proposed routes are the, the broader yellow lines and then the dash green are the proposed addition to the safe routes and then the the thinner red lines are the identified pedestrian projects and that that would fall on safe routes so then get that priority priority score in the non-motorized program of being on a safe route and and so then the following page is the table of those projects with you know some more detail of where they are and the street classification that they're on. And then on to the, the second map is the similar proposed safe routes with the uh, identified bicycle projects overlaid. And then the table of those bike projects. 
So uh, now we'll uh, switch topic to the adult crossing guards. Um, so again, after we had identified the proposed routes based on the, the boundary revisions, then we started looking at our existing crossing guard locations and potential uh, new locations that, that would have demand, or as, as Jessica mentioned, you know, a lot of these boundary revisions are sending students across arterial streets. And so those were, uh, I think all of the locations here in this first uh, section were uh, new crossings of arterial streets. And so typically those would meet warrants for a, a crossing guard. And so we evaluated these locations we identified uh, based on our potential crossings from the pedestrian model against the warrant criteria in the school area traffic control policy for crossing guards. And so these are the locations we're proposing to pilot in the upcoming school year. But again, uh, realizing the whole process is compressed and, and this is a, a, a pretty heavy lift for the crossing guard program to have this many pilots. We're proposing a, a shorter term uh, pilot period for each location of 30 to 60 days as opposed to committing to a pilot for the whole year. And I guess that was also a lesson learned. We had this past year of um, committing pilots for the whole year and then some of those pilot locations did not see the demand. And so trying to more effectively use those resources and, and pilot more locations in, in the upcoming year. Um, so again, the uh, the first uh, bullet points are the proposed pilots for this year, this up upcoming year. Uh, the next set of bullets, these are locations that were piloted this past school year, and uh, we reevaluated when the guard was in place and the actual student crossing numbers meet the warrants to have a permanent guard placed at these locations. These are both adjacent to Sunflower Elementary on Inverness at uh, 27th Street and then Sunflower Park Place is the roundabout right in front of Sunflower Elementary. So again, those are proposed for permanent guards going forward next year. And then the next uh, three set of bullets are other locations that were piloted this year and did not meet warrants with the actual student crossings. And so uh, in the table, I think we show those as removed, but essentially those those will be reallocated is maybe a more accurate term for those. Um, and then again, just looking at the table, the, the uh, seven proposed pilots for the upcoming school year at the bottom of the table. And again, those say warranted and the uh, average number of students to, uh, column in that table is based on potential crossings, not the actual students. And so we would place the guard for the 30 to 60 days, collect counts of actual students, and then reevaluate against the warrant criteria. Uh, we'll stay here and uh, turn it over to Brad <clears throat> some points about the, the crossing guard program. Good evening. It's been a while since I've seen you guys, so glad to be back. 
Uh, my name is Brad Harrell. I'm the parking supervisor and I also oversee our school crossing guard program. Um, operationally, we learned a lot during our first year of the um, school area traffic control policy. The management of school crossing guard staff continues to be a challenge for our division. The program improvement request was submitted through the city's budget process for seven additional school crossing guard pilots. Uh, the timeline, as, as Dustin had mentioned, the timeline for budget approval and hiring prior to the start of school will be challenging to deploy crossing guards prior to the start. Uh, we will do our best to ensure that we communicate with USD 497 so that we can so they can return communicate with parents. Uh, depending on the final school start and end times, we are hoping that some of our existing staff would be able to cover two crossings. We currently have a number of guards right now that do two different schools that are in two different start times. Um, so that's going to be really, we're hoping that will help kind of bridge our gap between the time when we can get new hires in and, uh, you know, manage that increased service level. Uh, following the implementation of the 2023 pilot guards, as Dustin mentioned, we quickly identified a number of crossings that likely were not going to meet warrants due to our, um, and we were really limited when, you know, there was a crossing, I think, that was just adjacent to one that we had where it would be much better use of our, of our guard at that location. We were unable to make that adjustment. So as he had mentioned, we're hoping we can transition that into a 30 or 60 day trial period that is going to uh, potentially cause additional hiring um, issues when you only are permitting it for 30 days to 60 days but it's a willing uh, risk we're willing to take because we think there is a benefit for us trying to reallocate it if, if able um, and yeah th this will just allow us to really evaluate the crossing and, and reallocate if we need to so um, from an operational standpoint, that's all I have. The, the people that really do the, the heavy lifting are sitting right over here, but from a management, um, it continues to be a challenge. All right. So as we went through this process, you can see we prepared a lot of evaluation to provide to the public, which required a lot of kind of investment and review of the materials um, to do that. We uh, hosted a, uh, two surveys online at the MPO TELUS portal and uh, from May 10th through the 23rd. Um, we did two because crossing guards affect elementary and middle schools, whereas all the route and boundary changes were elementary only. Um, as we sent those out, to, we had some separate questions around school um, schools you're, you may be affiliated with. Um, we had 41 responses to the routes um, survey, um, about routes and projects, and 18 to the crossing guards survey. Um, this survey discussion, if you had taken a look at it, really um, g gave you hopefully a high-level summary of what um, types of concerns we heard from the public. Um, some things, you know, were some things very specific to their situation, some things system-wide in terms of um, things that you should be familiar with in your position as uh, transportation commissioners. Um, will This just kind of helped us understand um, people's concerns and um, able to do that, obviously. Crossings and physical improvements, concerns with traffic and other route concerns. And we took a look at those. We then um, pulled these into the consideration of what we were 
looking at in terms of some of those requests and I'll let Dustin talk a little more about that um, I think each of these decisions is is really hard because there's a lot of factors we we didn't know so some of the policies that we set ourselves up for in terms of school with the school area traffic control policy and the option to pilot guards is going to help us in this situation somewhat because it created our model to be able to understand what potential crossings may look like i think as we ro roll as these changes are rolled out i think there's probably more things we're, we'll observe and that we need to um, be thoughtful about in terms of in terms of our continued process but Dustin's gonna walk you through these different summaries we and the, when we initially posted this we didn't have all the notes and staff action we met with the committee uh, late last week once everybody we could get everybody together and we've added some notes in our kind of action and response to that and Dustin's gonna go through those with you and we can talk about any more of them in detail in terms of the discussion we had as a group yep so the <clears throat> first table of uh, it's on uh, sheet 25 of the attachment is that we heard through the survey several uh, requests for additional crossing guards or um, I guess new locations that had hadn't been evaluated recently and so that's again like Jessica mentioned we the kind of the first I guess five columns of the table are what came out of the survey and then the notes and staff action are the 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 discussion we had with the safe routes working group as you know being visible that not only did we read the the survey responses but we're, we're taking some action on them so uh, several of the crossing guard requests were uh, locations that have been evaluated within the last five years which is um, part of the school area traffic control policy that would only evaluate a location once every five years um, and then uh, I think there were five uh, locations that were new locations that we haven't evaluated before and so we're proposing to put those in the queue to uh, evaluate and as part of the next year's process when we have time to do the full process where we would take requests and evaluate them and then and then uh, come back with proposed locations for the, the following school year and then there were uh, several kind of unique situations and um, I, I guess just a, for instance like the second street in Iowa was I think one Jessica mentioned when she was going through the map for Deerfield where that's a, a location where we've added it to a route uh, second street east of Iowa but there is missing infrastructure there so um, I guess our action for now is you know we we would reevaluate that for a crossing guard once the infrastructure is in place we we wouldn't want to put a crossing guard there now without the infrastructure which would encourage students to to get there or to use that crossing but no um, safe way to get to the crossing um, but we can uh, uh, discuss any of the other ones in detail when we open it up if you need to and so then the, the second kind of set of themes that we gleaned from the survey were requests for infrastructure improvements and and there were some common themes here of you know crossing improvements stop signs traffic calming 
those type of requests and the ones that uh, I think kind of all meet the the criteria of and are on a route then we would evaluate you know just through our normal uh, process that that municipal services and operations have for evaluating those type of requests as they come in for signs or crossing improvements and so that those will be you know added added to our list of of requests that we process in our normal manner I think that covers what what we wanted to present formally and then open it up for discussion first <clears throat> thanks everybody so going back to the infrastructure maps okay. I just wanted to make sure I understood the use of interim that hasn't been used before right no. okay so is there like a time period that that's I guess I'm, I'm assuming this so, infrastructure is for planning but then if it's interim so I would say the interim route would be more of the route that we're going to use on the encouragement okay. map that we Thank would you. show that as the route you could use it for encouragement and once the other route was constructed there would no longer be a need okay. to once the gap infill would happen either crossing improvements at that intersection and the gap sidewalk gap infill was filled and there would no longer be a need for that interim route that, I mean it could still be a route people chose to take right. um, it's something we waffled with a little bit in terms of the conversation with the Safe Routes to School Working Group because we know that uh, typically in our previous process, our response from parents when we've asked them very specifically, would you like us to use the street network or the DeVictor Park Trail? Would you like us to use the street network or the Naismith Valley Park Trail? Would you like us to use anything versus a trail? Um, it has always been use the street. And I think that's a, it's a safety, it's an eyes on the street mm -hmm. um, kind of reaction to that. In this case, I think we felt like the traffic safety concern outweighed that the option of in terms of infrastructure, in terms of there not being another option. Um, if you look at this location, I mean, you're not gonna cross at 4th Street. You're not likely to come all the way south to 6th Street to walk up 6th Street to go back down um, north, down Lawrence Avenue. So there, with that real lack of option in that regard, that, that was something that we felt maybe as a comfortable option okay. in that interim the goal though really there from the school conversation has been their commitment to bus those students and so it will be seen i think what kind of we what we hear from people or what we see you'll notice in the comments if you read through them all we got a request for putting a placing a crossing guard at west second and mcdonald mm -hmm. and our response is we do not want to encourage students to walk there without infrastructure in this narrow corridor without sidewalks and so our recommendation for as staff would be to not place a guard crossing guard there um, even as a pilot until infrastructure is constructed Okay. Thank you. Um, I had a question, kind of looking at the both the maps and the survey responses. Which, first of all, you know, before I potentially critique, great job. I know that the timeline was very quick, and I remember us chatting about it earlier in the year and having this conversation. Um, so, really impressive stuff, um, especially with all the work you guys have put in. I can tell, so uh, first question, what, how was the survey advertised? I know it was a quick 
timeline in terms of when parents or even community members could respond. How is this? Out, how did we get the survey out to people? Because 59 responses is a little concerning. Yeah, so that's not necessarily that surprising. First off, this was a very short two-week period. So as we talk about challenges we have in communication, that's always going to be something we're challenged with. So if you ever have ideas for us of other strategies and techniques we should do after I share that, I would say first off, we're open to learning from whatever that is. Um, we had, we put out a press release, we use social media, we shared it with the school district, we shared it with public health to use our social networks to do that. Additionally, we had an open house um, to be able to answer questions for people at the library for a few hours where we um, presented all this information and also um, handed out paper copies of the survey. Um, and that's the, that's the efforts we took in this short time period for a two-week study. So it could be in, you know, when we have other longer processes, we table or visit PTOs or PTAs or, you know, we've done other things when we've done larger, like the plan development for safe routes to school at, at large. Um, this was a pretty short timeline for us to turn this around. Um, and so we did the best we could in terms of using our, most of our online tools to communicate that this survey was available. Kind of in tandem, and that's kind of a response. Did the school district send out a district-wide email in regards to this? If you I don't believe they did. I don't have a child in the school district. I, you, uh, anybody who does can speak. I don't believe so. I think I thought they reposted our post. Yeah. Maybe on Facebook. I think also in general. That specific timeline kind of got lost in the end of school year, mm -hmm. you know, excitement and, and kind of informality of just getting to the finish line. Sure. No, that makes sense. I'll, I'll just throw in, like, actually, when I saw this, I thought, wow, that's actually impressive. <laughs> um, just knowing, like, the, how quick this was done, I wouldn't have imagined there would be a whole lot of input. So I was... I was I was pleased. I thought it was not only the number I thought was satisfying, but it was what the what the feedback they got. I thought was yeah. good. And so, um, but I have a perspective from informed by previous efforts, and I feel like okay, um, if you're not familiar with that, maybe this seems wow. There should have been more. No, and I, th I think that's important to point out. One consideration is it was a short timeline, but it also, a lot of parents might have dismissed it because their um, neighborhood wasn't really part of the right. boundary change. So you might think, like, this didn't affect everyone, it affected a small group, even though it looked like you were open to feedback across the whole system, which was part of what impressed me. Um, so it's also not on the normal cycle. Yeah. So there's just a whole lot of things that made this a kind of an oddball to even do it and the fact that it was done was really satisfying to me so good job i think my lack of experience in local government comes into play here but i also think that's in tandem of how we can improve because while some a lot of the routes weren't changed it still did have a district-wide impact especially with two elementary schools closing so me as a person in the community who followed the closings pretty heavily, even though I'm, I clearly don't have a student in elementary school. Um, it, uh, you know, that number did jump out to me, but really important context and feedback in general. I think also 
Um, uh, this is a broader question. I saw that one of the parents kind of brought up the idea of marking the routes. Oh, that too. That was and so uh, I don't know what the process is, if that's even possible. Um, I know that there's an encouragement we, sh- we saw last year's previously. That idea was intriguing, and so I wanted to make sure it was a conversation because I saw that as one of the responses. I, d- I guess I wanted to hear a response from you all. Yeah. That's not the first time we've heard that idea. Um, Charlie probably can speak to that from way back when we were doing our initial safe routes to school work. Um, it's not something, it's something we've talked about as a strategy. Um, and there's a lot of national strategies about painting crosswalks with school logos, identification. It's not something we've worked through the implementation process here. And so I would think that could be a strategy we continue to have with public health and school. I don't know in terms of thinking about all of our needs and pavement markings and um, all of the other programs and projects. I'm not sure how that falls in terms of, I think we would see it more as a driven by community um, response. That's how it usually is in most um, best practices that we see for safe routes to school. So it can be something we continue in the conversation around um, routes to school. Dave, do you have anything? I don't know if you have anything to add about. I mean, it's a cool idea, and I think a lot of schools will use like the mascot, yeah. and just having those kind of stamped along the way. Um, it's really an encouragement strategy, and I think it's a great idea, but it just hasn't really been done. So I guess it's, I'm not going to propose anything today because the, the time will I mean, say everything when, that happened. When, when I was involved in it early on, my kids were part of the pilot of anything we did, so I would take them, like, all right, this is going to be the route, so we have to go test it out. And, you know, my oldest daughter at the time was, what, she was starting first grade or something, so we walked the whole route, and, you know, she was with the camera taking pictures of things, and, you know, it was fun. And part of it is, how do kids enjoy this way of getting to school? Mm-hmm. Other than that, they get to spend time with their dad or their mom or something. But how do they make the route itself kind of exciting, you know? Not just the feeling like, oh, I have to go walk to school. Like, well, what if, you know, we had this little space that we kind of called, like it was a little forest, although it was just tree canopy that went over the sidewalk, but it became a thing that got my daughters excited. So I think those ideas are best done by the parents and the schools but yeah somewhere there has to be the energy to turn it into you know actually implement it um, most people aren't going to probably complain if suddenly they see some painted stamps on their sidewalk in front of their house and that helps to designate yeah this is the this is the route kids take to get to school I don't think there would be much objection. I think it's just a matter of who's going to take it on. Yeah, I, so. I think maybe as we consider it in the future, um, adding some creativity to the walks to encourage folks. I think I'm all I'm all for that. And I mean, uh, maybe it's something we try to weave into the neighborhood traffic management. You know, if you have a school in your neighborhood and then talking about trying to improve safety for your whole neighborhood, if there's a route. Or is your committee even aware of it, and what are they doing to make that a more encouraging and safe route for kids to walk or bike? Absolutely. But That's all I had. Thanks again, folks. Uh, to follow up on that, Jessica, this is great. I, um, as I'm looking at comments, um, 
I see a lot that are feeding into Cordley and Schwegler, uh, presumably coming from a lot of Broken Arrow families. And I know, because um, I'm proximate to the area, um, that a lot of Broken Arrow students and their families walk to school. And I, uh, I, I, my kids feed into Cordley, and I talked to the PTA there and said, hey, have people respond to this survey? But I also see, I think, you know, the 23rd Street crossing as, as um, a pinch point for a lot of these families. And I know there's a new crossing guard proposed at 23rd in Louisiana um, on on the Schwegler crossing, you know, getting those Broken Arrow students over that way. I know, you know, you didn't want to obviously send them up Louisiana and, and down 23rd. Um, with that river kind of split with the, you know, the split of Broken Arrow students going to the two schools, do you know um, in the in the design of how these routes were organized, did they follow along how the the district had proposed splitting them? Does that make sense? No, I don't understand what you're asking me. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, the like the district had like split the Broken Arrow neighborhood into kind of these different areas as to who would feed into Cordley and who would feed into Schwagler based on where they lived in the you know the the areas south of 23rd where Broken Arrow is. Mm -hmm. Did the did the routes follow or were they responsive to that the splits that the school district had designated? Yes, so we received the boundary decision from the school board and then we reacted to it and were allowed and created some route proposals. Does that clarify? So yeah. I, we did see some, I do think you're right, we did see some comments around um, thinking about how we cross 23rd Street as a barrier, um, including one that asked to add a signal and cross at Vermont. Um, you know, we, we talked about we have to be at a signalized intersection. Um, and then we looked at, this is where having done the work that we've done before on our school area traffic control policy, we have a pedestrian model that allows us to input the student addresses and use the network that's built in the model to route kids to the destination. And that model has different rules in it. Um, and so when you set it to require crossing at those intersections, we were able to assess the number of crossings if we had no, no route preference. And we just said, OK, get to Cordley. How many students would be crossing at Alabama? How many students might be crossing at Naismith? How many students may be crossing at Louisiana and Mass? And then we looked at those potential crossing numbers in the, in the sense of thinking about, well, if we, if we had the crossing on Alabama Street, you're not going to get, you're going to have to split the difference, right? You're not going to get everyone for far enough on the east to walk that far up to walk back. And you're not going to get, if you put it at Louisiana, that allow, and that's why we went and added the section along Alabama was because they're part of this density even though there's not a lot of connectivity in here um, it's a lot of private network in through parking lots and so people who live in this some of these locations may choose to find a path through here that is not a public street 
and we can't control that but in that sense we do we did feel like we needed to make sure that this part was the route and we were funneling students up north we looked at that also compared to what the density was in terms of on um, the east side of Louisiana also and recognized that many of the students in this um, this portion you could route up Louisiana more easily and convincingly than trying to get more people to come through and to come up mass to have to cut back. So we were trying to make some calculated decisions about behavior, about knowing where student densities were, about our understanding of what infrastructure currently exists, knowing that 23rd Street is going to be a crossing barrier. Um, for kids who, who used to go to Broken Arrow and maybe only had to cross Louisiana as the largest street and now have to cross 23rd Street. Does that help inform un you understand kind of how we looked at the data to try to make a recommendation? Yeah, that's great. And just your explanation of why to split it down the middle with Louisiana as opposed to going across Alabama or Mass or whatnot really uh, helps clarify that for me. Thank you. And I think as a system perspective also, ideally, you know, maybe in the, I think in the future we can see what actually happens in terms of observing what happens in these places in the community, what the actual result is. Since this has never been a movement that kids have been expected to do to get to school, there may be something we learn about any of these crossings. We also didn't feel like in this situation there, there wasn't enough students in those areas to warrant multiple pilot guards. And we recognize at a system at large, in almost all cases, we're forcing uh, kids to cross arterial streets which means we really needed to distribute resources to think about what all of piloting different locations of arterial crossings look like as a system approach uh, to school crossing guards. We talk about the reality and cost savings to the school district. Well, it's a shifting of burden of financial resources to get kids to school under these policies too. So it's an increase in resources needed to increase those guards and the operation of them. And that still is pending a city budget process. Side question to that one. Does the school district in any way contribute to those no, the school, the school crossing guard program is entirely city funded through the city mm -hmm. general fund. And so that has to go through the annual city budget process. Yeah, we had that discussion back when the original safe routes to school uh, policy, I guess, or plan was for it. And I think the answer was like, they just don't have the bandwidth for this. They, they don't have the funds. They're closing schools already. Though it certainly makes sense because it is their schools to which MPO and MSO are getting kids to. You'd think there'd be a cost share, but it, it's unfortunately not realistic given their budget concerns right now. If you look at the larger Safe Routes to School plan, the plan recommends some alternative options for locations where crossing guards aren't either warranted per the school area traffic control policy or there's additional desire. We've also, and that's volunteer guards, that's um, school staff to fill in as guards, maybe in absences and in other cases, we haven't gotten support from USD 497 to do that. Um, with a limited exception at a couple school sites where some individual staff have decided to do that. Um, and student crossing guard programs. It's been national best practice to have older students do student safety patrols, and that's not something that was programmatically um, approachable kind of in our safe routes to school process, but it's something we recognize in the plan that could be options to 
crossing safety. Walking school bus is another option um, in terms of, you know, we talked to a parent who said, really, I want a crossing guard at every intersection my child has to cross along 27th Street. And I'm like, well, what you really need is a walking school bus. You need a school champions um, that organize around collecting students along a route at a designated time to both encourage but also, you know, safely route kids into school with an adult present if that's so desired. I think it's not a benefit to, uh, or an efficient use of city resources in that sense to place that many crossing guards if we can have a different kind of approach to that. This whole plan is wonderful. And I'm curious, what percentage of students walk to school? having this, all this great resource of knowing exactly where to walk. We are like in the 18 to 20% it's, it's of students walking <clears throat> biking to school. Some schools, it's over a quarter of the kids walk and bike. Is that mostly in the older neighborhoods <clears throat> or in the newer ones that have sidewalks in every No, street? Langston has a ton of kids that okay. walk and bike. Um, and that's a pretty large school on the west side of town. But I, it's somewhere you can pull Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for it. That's what I was looking for. <clears throat> I think system-wide, it's like we already met our, we've met our goal in terms of where we had went and originally in the plan. And our schools, one of the things we had benefited from is neighborhood schools. And so that obviously helps kids walk and bike. And so to the national average, we were far exceeding the national average in terms of number of students that walk and bike to school. I'm looking to see if I can find that data. It's collected so every twice a year, public health as part of our Safe Routes to School planning process coordinates with USD 497 student travel tallies. And that's where they work to coordinate at a district level going into every classroom. It's a national process um, to have kids self-identify how'd you get to school, biked, walked, wheeled, got driven took the bus, there's a checklist, and students, uh, teachers record that information and it's turned in collectively um, to the at the district level to public health and they enter all of that information and track that both in the fall and spring. And so there's some seasonal variation in fall and spring, but it's something we have a history of data that's collected by um, public health to help track where we're at. I imagine there will be some obvious changes to that now that we have many students walking greater distances, right? We've eliminated some neighborhood schools, so. And is there a target so that that's where the current walking and biking percentage is for students in Lawrence? Is there a, are we trying to get to this based on this program and other programs? Yeah, so in our previous Safe Routes to School plan, we had established a goal, and I believe the last year data, and I just, I can't quote it off the top of my head, I'm sorry, but um, we had exceeded that. So do I think in the future that may change? Yes. Um, it will yet to be seen kind of how this, um, yeah, it was to get to 20%, and if we, here, I'm going to share this again, just give me a second. So in the plan, we had goals around um, increasing students walking and biking to 20%, and we were at 17.8. And based on the most recent data that we collected that I saw, it was over 20%. So I think it was like 20 and some odd tenths, but um, that varies a lot between schools. Mm -hmm. um, but. I think it'll be seen to see if where we're at. We didn't come back and reset this because we're also making those changes. So in this, we would do that during the plan update process on our five-year um, cycle. But we also have goals around sidewalk gaps 
um, as you can see here in terms of filling infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And we've made significant progress. You can read through this plan in terms of where we've been over the last 10 years in terms of prioritizing investments of sidewalk gap infill for um, our safe, along our safe routes to school routes. So that, that uh, since 2014, the lowest measure was 13.4. That was spring of 2016. Mm -hmm. And the highest was fall of 2017, 18.4. It sounds like there's more recent data that yeah. hit above the 20% goal. It's wonderful. So this isn't inherently tied to this conversation. I think it's more of a conversation for next year's Safe Ride program, but um, something I figured I'd mention in that I'm curious to see what kind of branding or maybe uh, graphics that we have that kind of is meant to empower parents to kind of take up some of that burden because I feel based on these survey responses and kind of this overall conversation we're having is parents are kind of emphasizing that the city's not providing these crossing guards and that multimodal commission doesn't walk these streets which is a couple of comments that I've seen that the burden is more on the city, which, you know, right, where we're the ones kind of directing these conversations, while a lot of these potential complaints can maybe be addressed by kind of more community action. So conversation, for, not for now, but yeah. down the line, m maybe something to look at is kind of ways to generate more community action within these yeah. And if, if you'll let me to respond to that, I think that's always been our goal is to create partnerships across this program. It's not a siloed response. Our role, of course, as planning and engineering, as city government, you know, uh, officials is to fill that space in convening the group to 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 uh, gather and discuss these issues and work on each of our parts um, a lot of the branding part component has really been and the communication directly with parents and through the schools has primarily been done by public health um, and they over the years have had different grants that have funded different elements of that work and so we haven't at all talked about the more robust safe routes to school program if you came to our open house you would have seen the boards that highlighted our whole toolbox of uh, strategies we recommend. Um, it talked about some of the success we've had around um, bike fleets and other elements of bike curriculum and other curriculum development. And those are that's a lot of the work that we you haven't necessarily seen because that's part of our partner agencies in working with the U.S. D-497 and, and primarily public health and their role in doing that. And there is... Uh, I, I don't I think it's something we can explore in terms of how we buy in I think from the initial vision in the first safe routes to school planning work probably a close to a decade ago there was really a vision around identifying school champions at each school and creating school really individualized school-based plans that um, identified a lot more kind of community and groundswell action um, that hasn't been the result of our safe routes to school initiatives and I think it will continue to be something that we strive for as a larger collective safe routes to school issue. Um, the challenge in some of that 
comms that the current participants working on that on this in that regard has kind of hit that brainstorm is that's not really the role of an engineer that's not really the role of the MPO transportation planner to run programming and this kind of community um, advocacy and so we haven't yet maybe invited the right people or expanded the group or gotten the right structure to collectively move in that direction. But I think the more we do this work, the more important it is going to be to have success in it is going to be getting more people involved. I appreciate that answer. That makes perfect <clears throat> sense to me. Just something that came to mind. You're asking great questions. And <laughs> the, uh, you just started, <clears throat> started on this commission when we kind of brought this up earlier in the year. And that has always been the challenge is the, the level to get up to that next level, there has to be a more systematic effort shown at each school level. And there's only so much that can be done by the um, partners. And if the school district doesn't see it as part of their primary work, then you know, it's, it's gonna just still be a gap. Right. There's templates for action plans for each school. We've had training community-wide for school champions and given them the tools, the training, and, you know, parents move along with their children. So if you think about elementary, you're only there for a few years, and then boom, you're in middle school, which is over before you know it, and then kids want to drive, you know? So it's like the sweet spot is probably elementary, but there's not a... We're not investing the resources to make it easy for schools to do that. And where I was bringing up, like, we spent all this money on crossing guards, and yet there's so much more we need to do to make this really a, a viable program in all the neighborhoods we have. And the thing that's probably the you know, highest level of investment would be those walking school buses where sure you get a crossing guard across every single street and a whole gaggle of kids and they're all talking to their friends having a good time as they're walking to school and other communities have done that but they pay people to organize that at a school level and that is where we're kind of stuck there's not a pot of money waiting to hire school champions and when you try to higher school crossing guards, it's a really difficult proposition to hire those staff. So how do you, if, if that's already a challenge, then how do you find the money and find the people, you know, who's gonna organize and hire them? If the school district doesn't see it as their work, then does that fall back to the city who's already struggling to get enough crossing guards, you know? That's what I was like, well, we gotta get out of the box. Like, Parks and Rec is awesome, you know? They have a lot of people they hire. I don't know how they pull it off every year, all the people they have to hire, but could they just maybe hire some neighborhood walking leaders that maybe do walking for kids and for anyone else that wants to walk? I don't know. But, and this is a project that our community always seems to be supportive of Yet, it is clear if you've been involved in it for a while, you sort of recognize there's a gap that we're still not quite getting there. Um. 
I have a quick question, Jessica. What hours are the school crossing guards posted every day? Well, I'll let Brad answer that question. Hi, this is uh, Brad Harrell, parking supervisor. It's generally 30 minutes um, before and, and 30 minutes after the school is out is our normal hours. And every and, yeah, and every school is different. So, and it also depends on as we've. Um, you know, as we've discovered, the further away from the school you are, the, the longer we keep the hour. It, so it all kind of varies. But as a general rule of thumb, especially if you're close to proximity to the school, it's, it's 30 minutes. And that number might just step out a little bit further the further you get away from the school itself. Okay, thanks. So I, I'm looking at one of the comments under the Schwegler, or parent from Schwegler, talking about uh, kids getting out of Boys and Girls Club later on. And, you know, from a... Uh, sort of disadvantaged populations, equity perspective. Um, a lot of kids that are in Boys and Girls Club are uh, from low-income households potentially, and maybe are at, you know they're they're leaving at six o'clock at night, maybe getting into dusk hours. Has there ever been a, a conversation around having school crossing guards um, maybe prioritized at that time for safety-related reasons, or is it just? start and close of the regular school day? It's been a conversation in terms of, you know, just no, not always knowing different times that kids may have after school activities. That's generally been the tone of the conversation. It's really challenging there because many of, some of these crossings, the, the reason why the crossing is warranted is because of the number of students crossing in the time distance. That's a metric in the criteria and oftentimes the qu the quantity then of students all that would be using the same route that would be at that activity, there's no way for us to know that. And so the data becomes even more limited us for us to even anticipate whether there would be crossings there and we based on our anecdotal evidence don't believe that there would be a quantity along any route that would meet the warrants. Gotcha. But really, this program has only been ever, to my knowledge, at school start and, our, and dismissal times. Great, thanks. I had a quick question. Uh, I think shortening the length of the pilot crossing guards to allow you to be more nimble with using the resources where they have the most impact, I think that's a great idea. I'm just curious, is their plan like what happens when that 30, 60 day trial guard period is complete? Do we stop and look at the data at that point or do we have like a planned next location for them or are we hoping they turn into a permanent? We're gonna to have to discuss that operationally for how that works. And I would say the first response, the, my first thought is we're gonna to have to communicate whatever we do. Right. And a lot of it is going to depend on two things. Our timing of the final budget approval when we know that there will be budget to do it and the ability to hire. Yeah. And those two things are gonna dictate a lot about what we're even capable of doing in response to placing crossing guards in those pr proposed pilot locations. And so I think those two factors, um, particularly hiring and looking at, we don't know yet how all those, we don't know school starting, have those been decided yet? No, not, not yeah. at this time. And that's where this kind of just keeps adding to this challenge is right now, um, sorry, 
right now I, I don't even know if we have existing guards on staff that can potentially do one of these pilots um, as I said already we have a number of, of crossing guards that are doing two already so obviously they won't be able to do a th third um, but I'm still hopeful that maybe there's two or three there where we can really reduce the number of, of higher ease needed just to fill the increased service level and and you know to go answer your question I envision if let's just say in, in an ideal world we are able to hire all these guards and everyone's there after that 30 to 60 day period and we've had you know evaluations occurring at that time maybe you know there's part of this metric is not perfect you know when it comes to potential crossing so if we can identify hey just a couple blocks down the road it looks it appears we are having many more students at that area maybe that's in a place where we can just transition that pilot guard into a new pilot if you will to try to identify and fill that need right Thanks. It's going to have to be really responsive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've learned that from our first round um, of doing this. And so what you can probably hear from us is a future of men changes to school area traffic control policy, right? Um, to allow more flexibility and response in that process, just based on the experience in operationalizing that. One of the things I most recently learned, and after doing this work for a very long time, um, is that you know part of the reason around is transportation, is why all of our school arrival and dismissal times vary. And so figuring that out in terms of that's about bus service, that's about being able to run a second route on a bus which costs less than the first bus and route out and that in and of itself nationwide are experiencing driver shortages um, I talked to some Johnson County schools which are now for some of their elective rides are just doing single days with no busing um, in some of this in some of this process so I think there's a lot of things we're gonna have to watch and pay attention to that are impacted by the job market which is not something you would expect to have to pay attention to in terms of operationalizing some of this but it's impacted because of the nature of the work and um, what you're asking someone to do and how much you can pay and yep. how you get there. Yep. Shall we move on to public comment? Okay. Is there anybody online who wishes to make a public comment about this agenda item? Okay. Um, just quick before we close this out, I, f I forgot to mention earlier, but I, uh, I really like the table of responses to each crossing guard suggestion and each infrastructure suggestion. Like, I feel like if people knew that staff was actually reading every single comment, like, let me think about that, I'm gonna figure it out, I feel like there'd be a lot more you know, faith in government and municipal services. Is there any way to communicate that back to anybody who raised th th those issues, just to kind of let them know, like, you're sick? Your suggestions are not going into a black hole. Like a real person is reading these and actually evaluating if they make any sense. So I think we have the opportunity to post that comment, the, that summary on the MPO TELUS portal. We also then will be taking this through the MPO Technical Advisory Committee and MPO Policy Board. And um, the plan amendment portion of this um, will go to the City Commission for uh, consideration since it's amending what is the current plan. Mm -hmm. um, and so there will be, I think, additional op opportunities for us to post publicly and share in public formats. Um, the work that we've done in the response. Okay. I feel like it'd be a shame if people didn't understand quite how much has gone into this because it's it's important work and it's a lot of work. So thank you all for your pre presentation. Uh, I guess any final comments from the commission before we move on? Are we, wait, hold it. is there an action here? 
recommend, yes, recommend approval. approval. Yeah, we should get an motion if we do recommend approval. I move that we recommend approval of the <laughs> Safe Routes to School Plan Amendment. I second it. Okay. A first motion by Commissioner Bryan, a second by Commissioner Carter. All in favor, raise your hands, please. All right, that's unanimous. All right, um, we're at a point where we, we have a couple of smaller items and we could power through it or we could take a quick five minute break. What is the general sentiment of the commission? I'm good with going through it. I don't think, I don't think there's gonna be too much conversation. All right, sounds good. Let's talk about Safe Streets for All, Vision Zero Safety Plan Steering Committee. Yeah, so as you may remember, we got a grant uh, for the Safe Streets for All um, to do that action plan. And um, the uh, MPO Policy Board established a steering committee uh, last month. And um, on that steering committee, we have reserved a representative from this board. Um, we're just really getting uh, kind of started, yeah, getting a, a contact person with uh, FHWA and getting that kind of ball rolling on our end. So um, it may be a little while before we start the steering committee meetings. Um, but um, yeah, if there's any questions on that uh, around this, just let us know. But yeah, we're looking for someone to fill in. And I think what we're thinking it would be done in the next year. Yeah, I mean, I think our initial goal would be that it's completed before we, the deadline for the next call for projects for safe streets and roads for all. We've been somewhat delayed in getting an agreement um, and getting that going. So we'll, we don't want to rush a timeline to get a plan. And so we will respond how we need to based on that once we get a consultant on board. Um, and so we have a you know procurement process and stuff, so. Is the steering committee going to have a hand in selecting a consultant or is that going to all happen before the steering committee convenes? No, the staff will do, run the process to select a consultant. We have a staff um, committee that will do that. Um, the steering committee will work with that consultant, though, through a timeline and public process to develop the Vision Zero Safety Action Plan, which will include um, reviewing existing conditions and data to set targets um, for, a, for a zero year, um, and then identifying a high injury network based on the data, um, and identifying countermeasures and recommended um, locations uh, for implementation of that Vision Zero Safety Action Plan. Cool. Okay. Um, do I have any nominations or volunteers to be our, um, the MMTC appointee? I'm really passionate about Vision Zero work, so um, I would be happy to serve on this if uh, the other commissioners so desire. Okay. I nominate Commissioner Carter to serve on the Vision Zero Safety Action Plan Steering Committee. Okay. I'll second that. I guess before we do that, just because that went relatively fast, is there anybody else who's also interested? <laughs> just because usually the situation is that we have a lot of crickets and one person's like, I'll do it, like, sweet, you're on. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe I just wanted to make sure to give people a chance, so. And you might just also procedurally open it up for public comment. Oh, uh, yeah. All right. So, yeah. Sorry about the motion. But before we but do you can the motion, let's do public keep, comment. Yeah. Keep the motion a second, but just before yeah. you vote. Okay. 
see if there's any public comment. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yep, Mr. Thornburg, public comment. Still mute. Okay. I'd just like to point out that there are, are no positions for consumers on this board, let alone victims. Um, I will be taking that up with the MPO policy board next uh, at their next meeting. Thank you. Would you care to define consumers and victims in this context? That might help me understand the comment more. You folks are representatives appointed by the city. You are not strictly consumers. You are not uh, users of the so-called system of public transportation, which would include all modes, including the railroad, for example, which you have never addressed. <clears throat> and when, uh, when someone is struck by an automobile because of poor planning, or they have a collision, um, you never hear from them. Okay, does that give you an idea? Yeah, I, I guess I would just like to point out that every member of the commission does live within city limits and as far as I'm aware, does use multiple forms of transportation. Um, the rail line is is a, I guess a regional national line and just like the airport and freight is not within our jurisdiction necessarily. Um, as for victims, I mean, there's always a chance that somebody on the board is a victim, but it's not necessarily a demographic, I suppose, that was considered, so good point, but um, I don't know who the person would be to take that up with this, so. But thank you for your comment. Are there any other public comments online? Okay. Any more discussion from the commission? I had a question that'll tie into the next agenda item. I see that there's also a PTAC uh, representative, but if I remember correctly, this committee and PTAC will be, or is currently proposed to be one. Let's say if we appoint someone and they also appoint someone. Then we'll have two. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to one me. One from each Great that deal. now represent the new, and that may be not a bad thing, right? Sure. Because I'm not sure in all the transition how that will look in terms of appointments. So my thing and my thought would be it's a safe bet to leave that as a representative position and you get appointed and participate in that role and we'll figure out how we need to adjust this. Works for me. Okay. It also just takes time. I mean, I think this was one of the first recommendations acted on by the City Commission, and it was still six months after the Bike Ped Task Force issued their report. So that, you know, commission or committee is going to issue their report, and who knows? A lot of stuff on there, from my understanding, is going to require legal work, and they're doing a whole lot more than the Bike Ped Task Force, so it could take a couple of years maybe to see all that change <clears throat> or maybe it'll be swift who knows mm -hmm. i don't know okay any additional discussion or shall we go to motion i guess the motion's already here so it was a first by commissioner uh, rosa second by brian is that right mm -hmm. okay all in favor raise your hands okay it's unanimous commissioner carter is our mmtc appointee to the 
Safe streets for all vision, zero safety, action plan, steering committee. Catchy. All right, that moves us on to staff items. Yeah, speaking of uh, the discussion of board restructure, um, the uh, board and commissioner, commission, commission structure committee um, has uh, released their draft recommendations, which is on the city website, and I believe um, we've the city has sent out a um, release on on that to get public engagement and and specifically send it to board members um, and so if you go to the website um, you can view down uh, the draft proposal um, and there's a um, a few different options for engagement uh, there's a meeting june 15th 5 p.m at the carnegie building friday june 16th online via Zoom, and then there's a digital questionnaire, which is open um, until June the 30th. Um, and so as it pertains to this board, um, the draft recommendation was to combine the Public Transit Advisory Committee and uh, the Multimodal Transportation Commission um, under the Connected City um, uh, outcome. And maybe aviation, right? And maybe aviation. So aviation. Oh, weird one. Uh, they're also considering for uh, the economic uh, prosperity. Um, yeah. So, um, yep. Just wanted to note that. And um, if there's any questions or if you have any thoughts, please fill out the uh, digital questionnaire or attend one of the meetings. Yep. And that is all that I have for staff items. Okay. Let's go into commission items then. Do you have an update on the climate action plan? Uh, my update is once again, there is no update, but look for something next month. They're going to, I think, put out a draft. So next month is the one. That was basically my update as well. We were hoping for the meeting in a box from the consultant by like last month at least. Um, still is not here. Might be here in the next week, but I feel like we've heard that before. So it's getting a little bit frustrating. I was really hoping we were making a lot of progress and things just kind of stalled for some reason. So I think we do have a meeting scheduled sometime this month. So it's coming up. Um, I think we're soon going to be seeing the first draft of the, um, what's it called? the zones and the uses, which I feel like is kind of the meat of the zoning code. So that'll be interesting. I don't know if we necessarily need to have a study uh, section on it, but it's going to hopefully start featuring into our discussions a little bit more as we start seeing some, you know, measurable progress. So that's it from that committee. Does anybody else have any commission items? Okay. I have a couple. Um, Michael Allman brought up the idea of those legal changes that would that were recommended by Trek in their design guidelines, but would require like actually making an ordinance. How do we go about doing that? Um, I know we've talked about Idaho Stop a couple times, and I think the, the going response from staff is that since nobody else in Kansas does it, we would be going against state law, and it could be tricky and possibly invite conflict uh, legally. So I have a feeling that's not changed. But then there's the um, no right turn on red, and I forget the other one. But there's a couple of changes that Chuck recommended that we'd actually have to like put into law. Then the other one is about the bike lane updates. If I remember correctly, that's part of the bikeways program, and that gets updated every couple of years. I wish I knew more about that. But Jessica, is that that's under you, right? 
bikeway plan? Yeah, uh, yes, we have a bikeway plan uh, slated on a five-year cycle, so we'll get back into that. I think we'll probably start it at the end of 2024, if I'm right on my dates, in terms of 24-25 project to do that. Um, I would also remind you that decisions about bike implementing bikeway infrastructure recommendations are in your hands and so many of those discussions we've had that are allowed for within the bikeway plan in terms of comfort um, there is that conversation and provision and so that probably needs to be a public conversation we have as part of the bikeway planning process that would be my recommendation um, but in the meantime you, it can be your prerogative to decide not to recommend those okay that was my understanding thanks for clearing it up okay um, all right then there was the idea that came up of essentially wayfinding for safe routes to school I think it's a really cool idea I feel like it might be a major barrier in the same way that trying to figure out a bus route is a barrier for people who've never ridden a bus before like back before smartphones you just had to know where it was gonna go and know when to pull the cord it was kind of tricky unless you really knew your city extremely well um, and I would bet that for a seven-year-old wayfinding is difficult I mean learning to read a map is part of education and a lot of kids may not be there yet or really want to look at a map on their phone or on paper right so having like uh, the Pinkney Panther or whatever the I guess RIP right Whatever the mascot is for the school that you're going to could be on the sidewalk or the street in some way, which would be super cool, as long as it's not against any sort of laws of, I don't know, vandalism. Um, I think it would be cool to try to jumpstart that talk. I don't even know who we would talk to, though. Um, obviously, school board doesn't have the bandwidth for this sort of stuff. Are there extracurricular clubs at the schools? How could we raise this issue? And I'm kind of looking to the commission, because I don't feel like this is necessarily something that staff needs to take on in addition to what you're already doing. Um, so I don't know if we need to necessarily brainstorm ideas right now, but I think enough people brought it up that it's worth maybe pursuing as one more thing that we can do as a commission to kind of help help further things. So um, just just keep thinking about it. And next time we talk about safe routes to school, maybe it'll come up again and we can start kind of looking towards a solution. So um, that's all I had for commission items. Anybody else going once? Um, I guess to make sure we had the or i guess a answer was there on the ordinance topic of like how does that work i don't personally are we allowed to recommend ordinances to the city commission or would we have to do that as a private citizen no i mean in regards to the guidelines those are you know those are guidelines for us to use judgment on and make recommendations for the right turn on red uh, there are certain circumstances that it may be a good idea to, to implement that. And in the guidelines, it lists some of those. And so that's not an ordinance where we, you know, must do it everywhere. I mean, we would not recommend that. Um, so it's, that is something that would, we are not considering adopting an ordinance for. The guidelines uh, have been are attached to the our the bike ped design guidelines that we went through are attached to our citywide design guidelines, um, and um, if you know if there were, were to be more discussions on the Idaho stop, and I mean that would probably get to the level of having an ordinance, but that's nothing that we 
got got far enough down the road with the bike ped guidelines that we were taking any action to recommend an ordinance for that. That was good. Thank you. Okay. Um, if there isn't anything else, let's go on to the calendar. Uh, it looks like our next month study session is going to be your turn, as we've already talked about. So I'm going to do my best to kind of get some topics based on the questions that you all have brought up. I have a, a comment on that. I'm just wondering, you know, that's holiday weekend and whether that's whether we might want to consider delaying that till August so that we would get mm. maximum participation. I don't know. You know, that's. Um, mm. Yeah, I kind of forgot about yeah, that. The day before it would be the day before the fourth. Mm -hmm. right? It wanted to be Saturday, Sunday, so Monday and then Tuesday's the fourth. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it's like having the Friday after Thanksgiving, of, right? Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. Um, good point. I mean, I would just hate for us to not get participation because of because of that. I guess that's a general point to bring up as well. If if any of you are planning on being out, let's know ahead of time. So if we don't make quorum, the rest of us don't show up. Um, I'll be I'll be here. Okay. I'm not I, anywhere. I guess a question: Have we already contacted the neighborhood association about? Nope. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that could work out just fine. Going for August instead. Um, that means we got to come up with something for July. But um, you know, something that Dustin mentioned during the study session was the traffic calming. 101. Originally, I thought, man, that'd be kind of a sweet study session for us to have, but oh, it'll be after the time when we actually talk to land members. Maybe not. What if we were to do traffic calming 101 and you could kind of lay out the toolbox of what you've worked with for Al and, um, you know, like other kind of developments around the country, stuff you're seeing, stuff that ACTA was recommended, but maybe still kind of avant-garde. That could be maybe an interesting thing. Um, if you're here on July 3rd, of course, if you're going somewhere else, then maybe not a great fit, but... Just a thought there. And then we could be even more prepared for an August 7th your term meeting with land representatives. So we can work that out offline, but that's just just an idea to kind of so August 7th call not No, that's the week before. Sorry. I think okay. it's September. That's September. <laughs> You're right. But I always forget what it is too, so. Okay, so let's go on that maybe happening. We're also gonna be doing crossing improvement project recommendations. Sure, I know. Right. Yeah, and that ties into those guidelines. Um, okay. Um, that you know, and the the funding that we have for crossing improvements. So, based off that criteria, we've been working with our GIS staff to identify potential crossings for improvements, um, and we're kind of in the uh, we're we're working through it. Done a lot of work and just kind of got to pull it all together um, and see if we can get that together to make some recommendations but yeah we're that's something that uh we're anticipating to have for july which is a good combo with the five-year plan for non-motorized bike ped projects which it almost seems like in subsequent years these things may become uh, one just like the sidewalk improvements and safe rest of school have all kind of been rolled in more or less to the non-motorized project plan so um for anybody who's relatively new, this is something that we see like multiple times a year, and it's pretty important. It's a lot of the big, um, well, they're big for us. Big non-motorized projects that 
we try to help provide input for and see if the prioritization makes sense, if the funding's gonna work out. So this is one where I'm gonna ask you to do your homework as best as you can beforehand. Um, and, you know, ideally if you have any technical questions, send them to Dave prior to the meeting because there will probably be a lot of technical questions that we can probably do, you know, I guess offline just to make things a little bit more efficient, so. That's July. Um, I don't think we really need to look too far to August so far because there might be some other project related stuff that may come up in the meantime. So I feel like we're set for the next two months, at least enough. Any questions on schedule? Okay. In that case, I don't think we need to do motion to adjourn. So thanks everybody for the lively discussion and see you next month, hopefully. That's it. Congrats timing on your first uh, <clears throat> transmission.